Today's season finale of the El Fanboy Podcast is brought to you by you. Yes, you. This show is made possible by the generous donations of my listeners by way of patreon.com slash elfanboy. This week, we got a new patron. Welcome aboard, Marcus Sepulveda, and thanks for your support. Tomorrow, I'll be releasing a patron-only video featuring my unfiltered, spoilerific review of Star Wars The Last Jedi as a thank you to everyone who has pitched in so far. On today's show, I get to go one-on-one with the legendary Mark Miller. We had a great nearly 40-minute conversation where we touch on the Fox-Disney deal, his infamous Superman pitch with Matthew Vaughn, and we even get to talk about what it was like to see The Last Jedi while sitting next to Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill. Along the way, I also cover all the week's top stories and wrap things up with a super geeky spoiler chat with Dave Gonzalez of the Storm of Spoilers podcast about Star Wars The Last Jedi. After this, I'll be off until January 9th when I come back with a major announcement about the future of the show and about where you'll be able to find me. Because remember, a movement is coming and you're going to be a part of it. If you'd like to support the show, please visit www.patreon.com slash lfanboy. But now, let's start the show. Lfanboy, episode 43. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 43rd edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. You know, I'm really glad that I gave Star Wars The Last Jedi a second chance last night, because uh, in all honesty, my first impression of Ryan Johnson's take on Star Wars wasn't all that rosy on Friday night. I really got to be honest there. You know, he did a number of things that just didn't sit well with me. And no, I'm not referring to the way that he subverted expectations or the fact that certain theories went straight out the window. Remember, I'm not one of those people who judges a film based on what I wanted it to be. I don't think that's fair. You know, I think you have to judge a film for what it actually is and not what your expectations of it are. Um... But that said, you know, I had issues with it, things that just sort of pulled me out of the experience, things that felt like he didn't necessarily carry the baton that was passed to him. You know, the, the, the baton first carried by Lucas, which then went on to Abrams, which is now in his hands. I felt he made certain creative choices with the dialogue that just, you know, n- namely with the dialogue that just kind of pulled me out of it. Um, and then for me, like, especially like with some of the humor, some of the humor was jarringly distracting to the point where it almost felt like a, like a Marvel movie where it's almost commenting on itself and, and practically veering into parody. And there was just way too much dialogue and too many interactions that reminded me of Earth. And to me, I, you know, I don't go to a Star Wars film to think of Earth. I go to visit a galaxy far, far away. And while Abrams had two or three bits of dialogue that sounded out of place like that, you know, sounded like... Like maybe something I should have heard on an episode of Felicity. Uh, Johnson had a bunch of moments and lines of dialogue and terms used by these characters that just didn't feel like appropriate. Didn't feel like he was really respecting the world that he was entrusted with creating within. You know, he kind of some of it was like annoyingly earthbound. 
You know, phrases like big ass door, chrome dome, Godspeed, you know, an ancient Jedi casually referring to an old text as not a page turner. There were just a bunch of things like that that just pulled me out of it. You know, they felt out of place and kind of made me feel like we were watching a movie set on Earth in 2017. And to me, that was a bit of a disservice in terms of the writing and, and, and those kinds of distracting moments that just kind of shatter the illusion of where we are and what's going on. And, you know, aside from those things, which are you know, kind of nitpicks, I can admit that, there's also just a moment in the film's third act that I just, I absolutely hated. And I'm not going to spoil it now. I'll save that for the last half of this episode when I speak to Dave, but yeah, I hated it. And just overall, you know, I got to say, I walked away from the first viewing feeling very conflicted. You know, I didn't dislike the movie, but there was just a lot that weighed it down for me, you know, that really kept it from being great. And I just, I didn't know where to sit on the thing. I didn't know how to feel. A bunch of people asked me, oh, so what'd you think? What'd you think? And I just didn't really know what to say. Um, so that's why, you know, last night I thought, okay, I, ha- you know, I have to record the season finale tomorrow. I need to give people my real most honest assessment of this thing. Let me go see it a second time. You know, now that I know what's up, now that my expectations are in check, now that I, I more just sort of at peace with everything, let me go see it a second time to give this thing a fair shake because Star Wars does mean that much to me and I wanted to make sure you guys got something that wasn't just based on a first impression. And, you know, because I, I suspected that this was a movie that needed to be seen more than once, especially with some of the bolder things that happened in it. You know, it's a lot to take in in just one sitting. And I'm really glad I did. Um, I had a much better time the second go around. I still can't say I love it, and I don't know that I'll ever be able to say that, but I enjoyed it a great deal this time. And, you know, I got to say, those of you who are ganging up on folks who didn't like it, you need to cut them some slack. You know, you need to understand that this is a very different kind of Star Wars movie. And I don't mean that in terms of the fact that it wasn't safe or that it wasn't a rehash or because there wasn't a Death Star, you know, because, you know, I I, I, I celebrate the fact that it's bold and that it's different. But you got to understand, that's not what people are freaking out about. They're upset because Johnson has completely tweaked the narrative and the way in which it unfolds. You know, the original trilogy... And thus, the Star Wars that everyone fell in love with around the world was very much a piece of pop myth. You know, it had a lot of Joseph Campbell in its DNA, that universal story of the hero's journey. People love that sort of tale and all of the mysticism that comes with it. And that's what those original movies were about. And Abrams, despite leaning on nostalgia a little too hard, brought the series back to those roots in The Force Awakens, the hero's journey, the mythological voyage of self-discovery, good versus evil. And Johnson's movie veers us in the direction of science fiction, where he's taking this larger-than-life canvas and turning it into a mirror of our society. He's using the Star Wars universe as a backdrop to tell a metaphorical allegory about the world we live in today. He used the lore to tell a story that was more about 
bringing power to the people, distrusting the 1%, commenting on the pension for war by those at the top of the food chain and how that can make seeing the difference between good guys and bad guys nearly impossible. And he wanted to convey that you don't have to come from a powerful bloodline to achieve wonders, that any of us are capable of great things. And these are all interesting and beautiful ideas, but that's not the kind of story or ideas that people expect from a Star Wars movie. In fact, they're more in line with what we expect from Star Trek. You know, Star Trek was always more about the science fiction approach. It was an ideological series that asked big questions and used its cosmic trappings to tell stories that relate to current events. So it's kind of interesting when you think about it. You know, when J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek in 2009, he moved that series in the direction of Star Wars. He brought it in more of that mythological hero's journey element and centered it around Kirk. Now, eight years later, Johnson has done the reverse. He's taken Star Wars in the direction of Star Trek by making it more of a sci-fi exploration of relevant themes. And that's why I say you've got to give The Last Jedi's detractors some slack here. You know, there are, a, there are a great many people who liked that Star Wars didn't try to be preachy. They liked that Star Wars movies merely put new spins on classic myths, on classic tropes, because they loved the idea of disappearing into a world of pure escapism where good fights ev you know, evil where likable characters do epic things, intriguing villains spark our imaginations, and we get to, we get to put ourselves in the shoes of the protagonist and, and strap ourselves in for an adventure into the cosmos, into the great unknown. The Last Jedi wasn't that. And while for many of you that's exciting, for others it's a very sad departure. So from where I sit, I can see what each side of this debate is feeling. And me, personally, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle. I, you know, truthfully, I'm sad about some of the way Johnson has subverted and demystified what made Star Wars magical to me. But I'm also intrigued to see where we go from here, you know? And, and I appreciate that he had some very thoughtful ideas to share, ideas that could benefit the world around us if they somehow caught on. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, but, you know, all I ask is that you try to understand each other because life's not about attacking those we disagree with. It's about embracing those we do. And, you know, keeping an open mind. All right, now uh, let's get to the week's news. This weekend at the box office was kind of a no-brainer, really. I don't think anyone was really all that surprised with how things turned out, but let's run it down, shall we? Now that the weekend actuals are in, you know, there was a little bit of wiggle room about where The Last Jedi was going to land. Early in the weekend, they were trying to be conservative with projection, projections, saying maybe in the low 200s. Then as we went on, it said in the mid, in, you know, in the mid teens, then at some point they were saying it might be 224, you know, they, they were starting to get a little more uh, optimistic, but ultimately it, it landed at almost exactly $220 million, um, which falls right in line with some of the 
the uh, long-term projections that had come in. You know, a few weeks ago, before we really had a, a great sense for how it was going to open, the uh, box office prognosticators were basically saying that this thing is on track to open to 220 or more. And that's exactly where it landed. In second place, there was Ferdinand. Uh, it's a far-off second place with only $13.4 million. In third, there was Coco with $9.9 million. Then there was Wonder in fourth place with five point two, And rounding out your top five is Justice League. And since Justice League has been such a recurring topic here on El Fanboy, let's check in on how that film is doing. It's currently sitting at a worldwide cum of $636 million. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a shame that however it is that they accrue their costs over there at Warner Brothers, that it's just not in the traditional, uh, you know, breakdown. Because really, you know, they should be in the black by now. They should be in the positives. But by many accounts, they're still quite a bit off. You know, traditionally, what, what we're all told to do is take the budget of the film, double it, and that, that's how much it has to take just to break even. And by, you know, any realistic metric, the film cost anywhere between 250 and let's say 300, and if it really did cost 250, 300, then that means that by the time it crossed 500 or 600 million dollars, it should be a financially successful film. So you know, it's a, I I I would love to just sit down with uh, with someone at the studio one day and just ask, what is it that you do that makes it so hard for you to turn a profit with these damn movies? Um, but you know, Star Wars. Star Wars, you know, it, it did a couple notable things. I mean, just, you know, your Force Awakens opened to 248. So opening, you know, the, the opening, you know, is somewhat in the same stratosphere as that. There was a lot of questions about that leading into it. You know, without the freshness factor, without this being, you know, the first Star Wars episode in forever, would it still be able to crack some insane numbers? And, you know... A differential of only 28 million, that's really not bad. It also had the second largest opening of all time domestically. What else did it do? You know, it, it did a couple of really interesting things. It had, the, first of all, it had the second best Thursday night ever at 45 million. And thanks to a great, great, great cinema score of A, it also had some just phenomenal weekend days that rank up there in the top grossing, you know, Saturdays and Sundays of all time. So let's talk a little bit about that cinema score, though, because obviously that is going to be a big indicator of the film's legs. You know, a lot of noise was generated these last few days about the audience scores over on Rotten Tomatoes. And listen, you know, those cannot be trusted. You have to remember that. Users can vote multiple times. They can also vote without even seeing the movie. It's totally just this anonymous sort of thing. Anyone could spam that score. So that's why I've always laughed at people when they try to show me a Rotten Tomatoes audience score in an attempt to prove a point. You have to go by cinema score and post track because what cinema score does, by the way, is they poll people as they leave the theater. They get actual in-person, face-to-face responses from people who just saw the movie. That's why it is the only audience metric that the Hollywood industry pays any attention to. So anyone who thinks that the Rotten Tomatoes audience score means anything is lost. 
So, you know, it got an A cinema score, which is, you know, that's that's pretty much as good as it gets. You know, very few movies get the A plus. So A basically means that people just thought it was a perfect movie and they're going to recommend it and they love the hell out of it. Now, I do have to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer here. And this is just a lot of this is just my hunch. All right. This is just my hunch. But, you know, I do think that Star Wars is one of those properties that people just want to love. And so that A may not age very well. Yeah, and that's not a knock on the movie, which I enjoyed. Like I said, I enjoyed it, especially the second time around. I enjoyed it, but I just have a feeling that some people gave it an A simply because it's a Star Wars movie. You know, I remember walking out of The Dark Knight Rises, which I think is a good example for this. I walked out of The Dark Knight Rises, and I instantly knew what that movie was, which was a disappointment. Not a bad movie but a letdown after the incredible heights of the Dark Knight. And yet, I couldn't find a person who would admit that, other than me. I was there with a group of seven fellow fans, and I was the only one able to say, meh. Subsequently, in the years since, every other member of that group of seven has come to their senses and admitted I was right, that it was rather ho-hum. And I feel like pop culture in general has caught up with me in that regard. And while I think The Last Jedi is a strong film, a part of me really can't help but feel like, similar to Dark Knight Rises, it won't age that well. But, you know, we'll see. And as for what this means for like the box office outlook and this hunch of mine, you know, what could it mean for for the future of Star Wars or namely for Ryan Johnson? Because remember, everyone's talking about his next trilogy and how he's going to be like this great Star Wars architect. And look, I was talking about this yesterday on Twitter where Rick Shue and I got into it a bit, uh, you know. It had a fantastic opening weekend, the film. We know that. But a part of me is very curious about how the film's legs will be. And no, I'm not talking about weekend number two, because I expect that to be strong as well. But I mean, in the long haul, by the time the theatrical run is over, remember, The Force Awakens ended its run at $2.1 billion. Rogue One, which was a spinoff, and had decidedly lower expectations. So, you know, it ended at $1.1 billion, and that didn't raise any concern because it was just a spinoff. But I got to tell you, if The Last Jedi does end up somehow petering out a lot, and, you know, the the Monday numbers are in, so we'll talk talk about that in a second. If those numbers peter out a lot, and as Rick suggested, it ends up somewhere around $1.2 billion, I would be very worried about Ryan Johnson's trilogy, okay? Because Kathleen Kennedy does not mess around. Just a reminder, okay? She's fired Josh Trank. She took Gareth Edwards' movie and gave it to Tony Gilroy to fix it. She fired Lord and Miller two weeks from principal photography wrapping, and she fired Colin Trevorrow, the director of the massively successful Jurassic World, okay? Kennedy doesn't give a damn about changing gears and scrapping plans. If she thinks it's what's best for the series, she's doing it. No questions asked. She just, she doesn't care. So if in the long run... Last Jedi makes vastly less 
than episode seven, meaning Johnson's decisions to strip away a lot of what fans have come to expect from the Star Wars universe, you're going to see all that talk about his new trilogy dry up pretty damn quick. I'm just saying. And not that we, you know, let's not jump the gun, because like I said, I don't think Weekend 2 is going to have an insane drop. But just for the sake of comparison, the Monday numbers are in, and they are half what Force Awakens Monday numbers are. Now, granted, you know, not as many schools are on vacation now as they were in 2015 at this time. For whatever reason, that's just how the schedule sort of lined up. But Force Awakens on its first Monday made about $40 million. Last Jedi is making $20 million. That's a 50% drop. And I'm just, you know, we, we got to keep an eye on this because despite that A cinema score, which, like I said, might be through the rose colored glasses of diehard Star Wars fans who don't know how to admit that maybe this film had some problems. Um, if that divide starts to grow, if that if, if the percentage of what Last Jedi is making continues to be vastly lower than what Force Awakens made, there's going to be trouble. Okay, in, in my mind, and this is not a scientific guess whatsoever, but in my hunch tells me that the film needs to get north of 1.5 billion. No one's expecting it to touch two because two, you know, very few. I think there have been like three movies ever that have ever made it to that two billion dollar mark. I, I'm just you know, I'm, I don't have any data in front of me, but I all I know is in the history of Hollywood, only a tiny fraction, a tiny handful you can count on one hand how many films have crossed the $2 billion. So no one's expecting that of this movie. But it needs to come relatively close. Because, remember, this is the follow-up to The Force Awakens, which was a sensation when it came out. If this thing, you know, when, when Rick Shue said $1.2 billion, my head fell off. I'm like, hang on a second. You think Lucasfilm is going to be happy with a film that makes $900 million less than its predecessor? Absolutely not. So in my mind, unless this thing goes a, a good fair amount above 1.5, maybe 1.5, 1.8 billion, you might just see some big changes coming on the horizon. I don't, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but it's something to keep an eye on. Because people love to bring up, oh, well, the second films in these trilogies traditionally always go less than the first film in the trilogy. But that's a little, that's not the best analogy. That's not the best comparison. First of all, you know, we're, we're in a very different landscape now than we were in 1980 when Empire Strikes Back came out. Hell, you could even argue that we're in a different landscape than we were when Attack of the Clones came out. But, you know, since we are closer to Attack of the Clones than we are Empire Strikes Back, let's look at that for a second. Attack of the Clones made roughly $400 million less than The Phantom Menace. $400 million, and it was considered still, you know, obviously good enough to continue on, and it wasn't considered a flop or anything like that. But $400 million seems like a reasonable expectation for a drop. So with Force Awakens making $2.1 billion, you know, that would say that it needs to make like around $1.6, and like I said, we can give it a little more wiggle room, and say 1.5. But if this thing clocks in at those low billions, that is a big, big problem. And it means that this film has poisoned the well a little bit because people came out in droves for the opening weekend. People came in with all of their love and goodwill and expectations from The Force Awakens. And if this thing peters out, it's because whatever Johnson did, whatever choices he made has soured people 
on the film. And Kathleen Kennedy is not just going to sit idly by if that's the case. But while we're on the subject of Mr. Johnson's new trilogy, the director does have some new comments on the matter. Um, yeah, because all eyes are on that now. Now that he is the guy and The Last Jedi is out and dominating the world, everyone is wondering, what's, you know, what's he doing? Where, where is he at with it? And uh, he's got some answers for you. So Mr. Johnson says, I'm at the very beginning of trying to come up with it. He's talking about the timeline. Um, and honestly, timeline-wise, I'm not sure yet. In, in a way, it's interesting, but in a way, it's the least interesting part of it to me. I'm more thinking of what's the story going to be? Who is it going to follow? What elements is it going to have? What kind of drama is in it? My head right now is more in that place. I haven't really, really gotten into it. Right now, I'm mostly excited by the potential and just starting to form little clusters of ideas of what it might become. So, you know, he's still in very early stages. But, you know, the next question is, you know, wh wh when can we expect to start seeing these films? And, you know, you'd think he might be burnt out. Remember, he's been working on Last Jedi for ages. You know, like I brought up last week, when I was at Pinewood Studios in, in October of, of 2015, he was already about to move in. Uh, like three weeks later, he's been like he, he's been knee deep, waist deep in Star Wars stuff for like two and a half, three years right now. You'd think he'd want a break, but that's actually the opposite of what he says. Um, he says, we're going to figure out the timing of the next one. We haven't figured it out yet. I'll say I don't feel like, oh, my God, I'm exhausted. I need to sit on a beach for a month. I feel creatively energized right now. I feel like I want to jump right into work. This whole process has left me feeling ready to jump in and do it again right away. I don't know why. I don't know if that's a good sign. So that's what he said. He also revealed that there's going to be 20 minutes of scenes that were cut out of Last Jedi that we're likely to find on the home release. You know, there was some chatter about that a while ago that he had to cut a lot of stuff. I'm very curious to see what makes it into those extra 20 minutes of bonus scenes. Um, but yeah, so that's the latest from Ryan Johnson, both about the next trilogy and about the home release for The Last Jedi. Um, now, shifting gears a little bit, one of the other big stories going on now is, you know, Matthew Vaughn is back in the headlines talking DC. Um, so, you know, yesterday there were some quotes that made it out to light where, you know, he kind of said why he'd rather work with DC than with Marvel. Uh, and the reasoning is not really what you would expect. It's a little more cynical than just like, I happen to like DC characters more. Here's what Mr. Vaughn said. He said, I do love the world of DC and I've been talking to them at the moment about a few things. It's more fun getting involved with franchises when they're on the down, because then it's easier to make a good film. So if I got involved with a few of the superhero movies out there that have been disappointing, it's going to be, um, if I do okay, it'll probably be better. So that's kind of interesting of him to say that he knows that DC's hurting right now and that they need, you know, a film that's going to sort of elevate its profile in the in the uh, in the mainstream pop culture psyche. So he says, you know, because he also brought up, you know, that he similar with X-Men where, you know, he was coming off of X3, X-Men United. And also, I believe he also followed up, yeah, the X-Men Origins Wolverine movie when he made X-Men First Class. And that put him in a good position 
You know, his movie could only go up from there. And it also meant that Fox was going to stay out of his hair because they were just happy to have a capable filmmaker who was going to show up and and do this thing right. So, you know, it it does just make sense from a business standpoint. You want to walk in when they're vulnerable, when they need you, because then you can kind of just do what you want and they will stay out of the way. If he were to go over to Marvel Studios and speak to Kevin Feige about doing a movie, Kevin would be like, sure, I'd love to have you, but here's the plan. Here's how we do things. You got to work within our system. And, you know, Vaughn doesn't have to worry about that with DC because right now they're still in that stage of like, we need to rebuild. We need we need great creative artists who can come in and help us get this thing on track. Now, coupled with Vaughn's quotes from yesterday, there were also some quotes from Mr. Mark Miller, his longtime collaborator. But you know what? I could mention them here. But why? Those quotes came from my conversation with Mark that come up in a little bit. So you're just going to have to hang on, all right? Uh, Moving right along, we got Lord and Miller with comments about that animated Spider-Man Into the Spideyverse movie that we saw a trailer for last week that got me so excited. Lord and Miller had some comments about how they approached the movie, and they also said something that I wonder is sort of a, like a statement about their experience on the Solo movie that they were fired from. You know, the Star Wars uh, Han Solo movie that's coming out supposedly in five months. So here's what they had to say about Spider-Man Into the Spideyverse. We wanted to make a story about Miles. And when they came to us, he's referring to Sony, it seemed like an amazing opportunity to tell a different kind of Spider-Man story. This is Lord who said this. Uh, He went on to say, the thing that's exciting to us is the idea that anyone could be behind the mask. It seemed like a really great opportunity to subvert your expectations of what you thought a Spider-Man movie could be. And then Miller chimed in. And on top of that, being able to do an animation was a really exciting opportunity because no one's really ever made a superhero movie that has the look and feel of a comic book. So it's a really cool double opportunity. And then here's where things get a little bit interesting. Here's what what Lord's comment that just kind of made my ears prick up. Lord said, when you take a big property like Spider-Man, you know you can either play it safe or you can take it as a chance to do something really different. And that's the thing we always like to do is use these as an opportunity to try new things. Now, why do I think that sort of, you know, indirectly addresses some of what happened with Han Solo is, as we know, they tried to do too many new things. And that's why they butted uh, butted huds, butted heads with Kathleen Kennedy and with Lawrence Kasdan and why ultimately they were let go with two weeks to go. And Ron Howard had to come in and redo practically everything they did. Um, so I just thought that was interesting that they, they kind of, you know, Lord made it a point to say that, you know, we always like, you know, what we always like to do is use these as an opportunity to try new things. Um, so I, yeah, that was interesting to me while we're talking, you know, the Spidey verse, you know, there's still this Venom movie, which I'm sorry, folks, I just can't get excited about. I love Tom Hardy and I think Venom is a super cool character. I still do not get what's going on with this Venom movie, which is supposedly, you know, it doesn't really connect to Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, there's not going to be any Tom Holland. It really is like Sony's just sort of doing its own thing here. It's not a part of the MCU narrative. 
and I just don't get it. I don't know how audiences are going to buy into this. I really don't know who wants a Venom movie where there's no Spider-Man. Like, I'm just baffled. But regardless, there is some news on that. You know, I want to say about a month and a half ago, I shared with you a story about the fact that the word on the street was that the film was going to be borrowing from the Lethal Protector storyline from the books, and that has pretty much been confirmed. Something else has been confirmed is that Academy Award winner Michelle Williams, she will be playing Anne Weying. Now, Anne Weying, for those of you who are unaware, you know, they've obviously, since there have been so many, you know, iterations of Spider-Man and Venom, you know, there's different versions of her, but more often than not, you know, she's depicted as Eddie Brock's, uh, you know, ex-wife. And at some point, depending on the continuity, she becomes She-Venom. So we'll see what happens there. She did have a comment about, you know, what it was like working on this. And it's just kind of interesting to hear this, like, you know, this serious Academy Award winning actress who's been in all these prestigious movies for the last 10 years, sort of discuss what it's like being in one of these tentpole movies with all the CG. She says, I've done one other movie where I was asked to track a tennis ball with my eyes and pretend it was a giant creature thing. Not my favorite thing in the world to do, but it is a skill set and I'm trying to learn it. And uh, she's, geez, what can I tell you? Not too much right now. Of course, she's referring to, you know, her version of Anne Weying and then how she's going to be depicted in the film. Um, There's also some news about Gambit. You know, a lot of people are wondering, you know, now that Disney has bought Fox, what's going to happen to some of these films that aren't already in production? You know, because obviously nothing can happen with New Mutants. That's already in post and it's coming out very soon. And then, you know, X-Men Dark Phoenix is currently in principal photography. Uh, It might have even wrapped by now. Um, So they can't do anything about that. But Gambit, people thought maybe there's a chance this gets delayed and gets, you know, retrofitted to work within the MCU somehow. But that does not seem to be the case. According to new reports, they are still planning to start shooting in Louisiana as soon as this March under the, you know, the direction of Mr. Gore Verbinski. Remember, the, the Fox-Disney deal won't even go into effect for another year, year and a half. So, you know, it makes sense that this is entering production. What's interesting here is, you know, they're still going to make it. It's still going to be an R-rated movie aimed at an older audience. And according to a local newspaper... Down there in Louisiana, the budget is pretty darn high. Uh, $155 million for this spinoff movie, which, you know, if you track what they've been doing with these other R-rated Fox X-Men movies, that's a little on the high side there. You know, uh, just for example, Deadpool only cost around $69 million, and that was one of the reasons they were able to take that risk. It was so low budget that it was guaranteed to make its money back. So even if people don't care about it and it, and it fizzles out, at least they won't take a loss on it. Um, with, you know, if Gambit is, in fact, $155 million bucks, suddenly there's a lot more pressure on this film to succeed, and it's weird to greenlight a film with this big a budget, considering, you know, it's going to, A, it's going to be harder for it to succeed, and B, now with this Marvel thing looming, you know, do we really want to invest this much money in something that might just be getting rebooted anyway? Um, you know, there's a chance that this newspaper, which is called the Times-Picayune, 
uh, is wrong. Maybe they're still going by the original production budget. Because remember, at some point, Gambit was going to start filming back in 2015. And that's before, you know, and then it, after the success of Deadpool, they delayed it and they retooled it because they realized, oh, we, you know, this doesn't have to be this hugely budgeted, larger, insane story. It could just be a smaller character driven movie, just make the characters very appealing, like in Deadpool, and people will buy in. So, you know, so there's a chance that that budget is just a holdover from the original version of Gambit. But, you know, it's it's being reported, and we'll see what happens there. I'm very fascinated. I mean, honestly, I'm fascinated about a lot of this stuff because I was thinking about it. You know, what happens, okay, what happens if X-Men Dark Phoenix is amazing? Now, I know that seems like a long-shot possibility. Who's expecting it? It's from a first-time director in Simon Kinberg, and the X-Men movies have such a spotty track record overall where, yes, you know, every, every few, one of them is absolutely phenomenal, but then you deal with mediocre to bad aside from that. What happens, though, if X-Men Dark Phoenix is like uh, X-Men Days of Future Past? Okay, remember when Days of Future Past came out? What a sort of like surprise sort of sensation that was. How it how it seemingly got everyone excited about X-Men again. You know, when that movie came out, suddenly the X-Men were cool all over again. The reviews were positive, the fans were excited. It you know, it, it overall it was a very well-received movie and that's one of the reasons that X-Men Apocalypse was such a letdown because it seemed like they'd found their groove again. You know, it was the it was arguably the best X movie since X2. And I listen, I loved First Class, but I think Days of Future Past was better. And you know, when that movie came out, regardless of my personal opinion, it got people excited about the X-Men. So what happens if Dark Phoenix low-key becomes something like that, where it comes out next year and it, it it's a huge runaway success. Critics love it. The box office is through the roof. Everyone is super high as Sophie Turner, as Jean Grey, and all these characters, you know, all these new iterations of the characters, and Michael Fassbender as Magneto and James McAvoy. You know, like, what if? This is just a what if. It's amazing. What do you do? If you're Kevin Feige over at Marvel Studios, do you then go, hmm, maybe we don't reboot the X-Men? Or maybe we find a way to integrate, you know, cross-pollinate and somehow, you know, introduce a storyline where they're part of our world somehow using alternate realities or, you know, interdimensional storytelling? Or do you still just go, screw it, I don't care how much, you know, how well Dark Phoenix does. I'm hitting reset, recast, reboot, no matter what. So to me, that's fascinating. That is a fascinating conundrum I see on the horizon. What the heck happens if X-Men Dark Phoenix is absolutely amazing? I'd love to know your thoughts on it. So find me on the Twitter and let me know. But moving on... Um, Interesting comments here, switching gears over to TV for a second. You know, Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen, has some comments about wanting to play Gandalf if offered the role uh, on the Amazon TV series version of Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, he when someone was asking, like, you know, essentially, like, how would he feel about there being another Gandalf in the world? And he replied, 
What do you mean, another Gandalf? I haven't said yes because I haven't been asked. But are you suggesting someone else is going to play it? Who would be suitable? By the way, I don't know why I'm even attempting to do a British accent. It just kind of happened. I pictured him and it happened. Don't judge me. Um, but yeah, he went on to say that you know he's, he's 78 and that's still kind of young if you think about it. He said, Gandalf is over 7,000 years old, so I'm not too old. Um, yeah, I granted, some of this seems to be tongue in cheek, obviously, but you know, it, it's, while it's intriguing to think that maybe they could actually land a star of his magnitude to be on this TV series, I think it would be a misguided move. You know, I think if they're going to do this right, they need to just let it stand as its own thing. If McKellen is there, it's going to instantly just be a comparison to the movies and it's going to hamstring the creative opportunities for the series because it's going to instantly seem like this is a spinoff from the movies and therefore if it doesn't really follow the film's continuity or the film's tone or the film's you know, the way that the film's unfolded the narrative, it's going to lead to issues for the series. So honestly... Despite it being a cool idea, I hope they don't offer Ian McKellen the uh, the role of Gandalf again. I think it is time for something new if we're really going for something new here. Also in the realm of TV, there was just like breaking news in the last few minutes uh, for fans of Narcos, which is a series I love on Netflix. Kind of a big, you know, like I, 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 I'm excited and heartbroken all at once. Because first I hear, okay, Michael Pena and Diego Luna are going to star in Narco season four. That's huge. I love those guys. I mean, Michael Pena, you know, I think he's one of the most vastly underrated character actors of this current generation. I mean, he was a scene stealer in Marvel's Ant-Man. But if you see some of his other work, if you see him in Crash, if you see him in End of Watch, I mean, the guy's phenomenal. He's captivating. I also loved him in Cesar Chavez, which incidentally Diego Luna uh, directed. And I got to interview Diego Luna about that movie a, a bunch of years ago. And he's just a great guy too. I loved him in Rogue One. And he's just, you know, he's easy to root for. He's um, he's a very charismatic figure, and he brings a lot of energy to everything he does. So on the one hand, I'm super excited. Michael Pena, Diego Luna, Narco Season 4. Holy crap, what a casting coup. This is unbelievable. But then I do a little more digging, and A, after seeing the the, the teaser that, that was just released, which is pretty cool, by the way, um... I couldn't help but notice that that uh, Pedro Pascal's name wasn't included. And for those of you who don't track the show, Pedro Pascal has been one of the leads of the series from the outset. You know, his Javier Peña was one of the one of the main guys in all of the first three seasons. And then, you know, uh, what's his name? Boyd Holbrook left the series after season two, leaving Peña as like the remaining series lead for season three. And now I'm hearing that it's not that Michael Pena and Diego Luna are joining him. It sounds like Pascal is out now. According to Entertainment Weekly, you know, they're basically sort of doing like a soft reboot with Narcos. I guess they're going to continue the storyline where now the DEA and whatever, you know, now they're going to Mexico and they're going to track down the cartels there. But uh, it, it doesn't sound like Pedro Pascal is part of their plans all of a sudden. And what, so to me, that's very confusing. And I like, now I, now I'm sort of like, 
oh no. You know, I, on the one hand, I'm excited about Michael Pena and Diego Luna. On the other hand, I'm like, but you can't get rid of Javier Pena. You know, Pedro, Pedro Pascal is like the best part of that series. Even when Boyd Holbrook was on it, Pedro Pascal was the best part of that series. And he was great on Game of Thrones when he was on it. He's just, he's great. So if he's gone, that's a huge bummer. And that, that really, really interferes with my excitement for Narco season four now. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's it for, for, for that sort of news. We also, I have a couple of trailers just to respond to here that have broken since I last spoke to y'all. Uh, the big one this morning was, uh, Ocean's 8 trailer. Uh, honestly, meh. You know, I loved Ocean's 11 and Ocean's 13. Ocean's 12 was just kind of like, what's going on here? But, you know, I loved the Ocean's 11 and 13. And in general, you know, I have a huge, huge soft spot for the Ocean's movies. I love that cast. I love what Steven Soderbergh does with these kinds of heist films. And, you know, I'm very, I love that series. It really does hold a very soft spot in my heart. But this film isn't directed by Steven Soderbergh. And it doesn't, you know, at least so far in this teaser, it will not feature any of the core guys. I remember way back when they said it looks like uh, Rob Reiner will show up in there and make a make a cameo. But it seems like just it, it's, it doesn't have enough connective tissue for me at this current juncture. And honestly, the last film that Gary Ross, who directed this, the last film that Gary Ross was involved in that excited me at all was big with Tom Hanks in 1988. You know, I look at his, I, I look at his filmography and Gary Ross doesn't exactly set me on fire. You know, the, he, he co-wrote big. And I think that's the last time I ever cared about him. So him doing an oceans movie doesn't titillate me. You know, if, if they'd gotten Soderbergh for this, I'm definitely, I'm interested, but for now this, you know, you know what this almost feels like? I saw the trailer, and this felt like one of those Jim Carrey sequels that didn't have Jim Carrey in it, of which there were three, by the way. People, I don't know if people really realize that. You know, there was Dumb and Dumberer, there was The Son of Mask, and there was Ace Ventura Jr., three movies that were Jim Carrey movies that didn't have Jim Carrey in them. And honestly, you know, no disrespect to Sandra Bullock and the rest of the fantastic cast that they've put together, but the appeal of an Oceans movie for me is Danny Ocean and his crew. That's what makes it, that's what makes it Oceans 11. So I kind of wish this was simply its own thing. If it was its own thing, disconnected from the Oceans sort of thing over the top, the banner over it saying Oceans, I'd be more interested. This as an Ocean's follow-up, but without Danny Ocean and company, it just, I, I can't, it's, I, I can't get behind it. I just can't. Uh, the other trailer that came out also today was uh, Sicario, Sicario 2, Soldado. Um, yeah, it looks good. I don't know if you guys saw Sicario. It was kind of, you know, it was more of an indie sort of under the radar thing when it came out a couple years ago. Um but, you know, a couple things jumped out at me that had me a little bit worried. You know, first of all, as we all know, uh, or those of us who follow this know, you know, Denis Villeneuve is not directing this. You know, he's the, 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 the brilliant and talented director who did Sicario. He did Prisoners. He did Arrival. He just did Blade Runner 2049. You know, he's a phenomenal storyteller. And I loved Sicario because of what he did with it. Um, 
So, you know, with him no longer in the director's chair, I got to tell you, some of my hype is instantly taken down several notches. And second, you know, I'm a little worried about the trailer referring to this as the next chapter in the Sicario saga. I don't know. I, I just I didn't really think of the first one as this like franchise starter. You know, it was just a great self-contained crime thriller set in the deadly world of cartels and the DEA and all that intrigue and all that sort of stuff. You know, it felt like like a, a, like a movie for grown-ups. So I guess I'm just a little surprised that they're referring to it like it's some action series now. And I, I just hope it doesn't become hokey and try to turn Benicio Del Toro's character into like John McClane or Jason Bourne or John Rambo, you know, some sort of generic action hero guy. Um... But, you know, aside from all that, uh, I actually, I am, you know, I am uh, interested. The The trailer looks good. It looks, the movie looks like it's going to be sort of provocative with some of the political undertones and all that sort of stuff. So it's definitely on my radar. If you have, you know, if you get a chance, check out the trailer for uh, Sicario uh, 2, Soldado. But all right, we're just about ready to get into uh, what is the centerpiece of this season finale of El Fanboy, my conversation with Mr. Mark Miller. Look, since I assume some of you might X out of this for now, might uh, you know, might stop listening for, for the time being because there's going to be spoilers and all that sort of stuff about Star Wars and all that, um, I want to just say a couple closing things before you leave. Um... You know, thanks to everyone who has taken the time to support me ever since February when I started this El Fanboy venture. I've got some really exciting news coming up uh, when I return on January 9th that I cannot wait to share with you. And I, I keep almost letting the cat out of the bag, but I'm just going to keep that to myself for the time being. Thanks to all the five-star reviews. We've still got a perfect, perfect score on Apple Podcasts. And I got two more five-star reviews this week. And I can't give shout-outs to those people because they didn't write actual reviews. They just gave me the five-star ratings, which, I mean, that's perfectly acceptable. I'm not going to complain about that. But if anyone wants to take the time to head over to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star review... You know, that's how I was able to break into the top five fanboy podcasts in the world through the good reviews and through all the downloads and, and all the positive buzz around this show. So please, you know, if you get a chance, if you want to give me a Christmas gift or a holiday gift or, or para los tres reyes magos, please go over it. And the best thing you could do for me is to you know, give the show a positive review. Um and just a reminder, you know, since I am taking a three-week break, uh, what I'm doing is for next week, you know, during this slot where there would normally be a show, I'm going to be releasing the audio and video versions of what I'm releasing tomorrow for my patrons. You know, tomorrow I'm releasing a full-fledged spoiler review of Star Wars The Last Jedi. And, you know, that's going to be a video. And then next Tuesday, for those of you who are just itching for something to be in your podcast feed, I will release for you just the audio version of that. And over on the El Fanboy YouTube channel, I will be unlocking that video so that all of you can see it. Okay, so there will be a little bit of uh, El Fanboy goodness next week. If you're, you know, if you're looking, if you're jonesing for something after Christmas, you know, you'll have that. You'll have that on Tuesday. All right. For now, uh, it is time to get into my conversation with Mark Miller, which will then be followed up with a different conversation with Dave Gonzalez. 
Um, in that one, that's going to be just full fledged Star Wars spoiler. So, you know, the Mark Miller stuff, you could listen to the first probably 20 minutes of that before having any Star Wars, anything spoiled for you. Cause we cover all kinds of other things before we get to Star Wars. But the, uh, the Dave Gonzalez bit that is all spoilers. So I'm warning you that now, and I'll warn you again after the Miller thing. So, all right, I'll catch you on the other side of this conversation with Mr. Mark Miller. So for this wonderfully special season finale of the podcast, I I couldn't think of a more apropos guest. I'm actually rather sort of humbled and and, and shocked and delighted to have landed him. Uh, He's someone who really requires no introduction, but what the heck, I'm going to go for it anyway. Mr. Mark Miller is the New York Times best-selling author of Wanted, Kick-Ass, and Kingsman, The Secret Service, all of which have been adapted into successful films. He also wrote Old Man Logan, which inspired my favorite film of this year, Logan, and he wrote Civil War, which is Marvel's biggest-selling graphic novel of all time and the inspiration for Captain America's Civil War. His 2002 book, The Ultimates, has been described as the blueprint for the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it. It is an honor and a pleasure to bring on to the El Fanboy podcast, Mr. Mark Miller. How are you, Mark? Very good. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very slightly hungover, very slightly hungover from like, um, I've got children and I like going out drinking at the weekend and it's a terrible combination. So the kids got me up at six o'clock with a hangover this morning. Oh my goodness. I, I Trust me, I, I feel your pain. I know exactly what that's like. I've, I've got two little ones myself. But uh, I'm glad you're here with me anyway, despite the hangover. Hopefully you're drinking lots of water. Do you know, it's a deadly combination, a hangover and a Scottish accent. <laughs> nobody's going to understand a word of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think somehow we shall weather on. Um, I mean, you know, I feel like you must be having a hangover from just this year you've been having. I mean, 2017 has been pretty nuts. You know, you got to see some of, you know, the seeds of your old man Logan book grow into a, you know, very sort of unique and groundbreaking film by James Mangold, you know, Logan earlier this year. There was Kingsman, The Golden Circle, which came out. And, you know, that's a sequel to you know Kingsman, The Secret Service, a film I absolutely loved. You know, there's a there, there's been movement on a Starlight movie, possibly, which would star Sylvester Stallone, which I love to ask you about. And then, you know, there's the, the biggest news of all, you know, your Miller World production house was bought up by Netflix. So, I mean, who's, who's had a better 2017 than you? <laughs> Do you know what's funny? Netflix has eclipsed everything for me, you know, like uh, it's just taken up my entire year. It's so exciting. And and the build up to it was, you know, we were obviously months and months in negotiation um, and the sale was a big deal and everything, you know, um, that all the other stuff I I hadn't even really thought about. It was I would get a call saying, oh, yeah, the Kingsman premieres in three days time. And then I missed it, you know, and. (laughs) Like, which is ridiculous, you know, but it was it was just such an exciting year that that lots of really cool things were happening, and I almost didn't get a chance to stop and smell the roses, you know. Yeah. So like, um, so I, there was two empty seats um, <laughs> sitting beside Colin Firth, you know, at the uh, at the Kingsman premiere, and I was kind of mad, but I, I I did catch it later. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you kind of had a bit of a uh, of a stacked plate this year, so I think I think I I hope they forgave you for missing the premiere. Um. <laughs> You know, I was actually just going to give them to two random pals because, like, uh, 
you know, I just thought they could probably just pretend they were me as long as they're Scottish, they'd be all right, you know? <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> yeah, of course. Maybe they could use a little CG and just kind of put you in there somehow too for photos, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about the Miller World Netflix thing. I mean, that's that's pretty huge. And I know as of now, you've already got, you know, the, the magic order lined up for next yeah. year. Uh, are there any plans for like TV series or original films, you know, for Netflix as of yet? Oh my God, yeah, that's all we've been doing this year. You know, I mean, like uh, Magic Order, I've finished uh, season one now. You know, it's it's completely done, um, and and you know we're we're starting to put things together on that. I mean, there's it's one of those things where you know now I'm so ingrained in it, Netflix. You know, I'm, I work at Netflix now. You know, my wife and I both um, run the Miller World division within Netflix. Yeah. Um, that I'm sworn to secrecy. I'm suddenly no longer interesting because I, I can't I can't see all the stuff I'd normally spill the beans on, you know. Yeah. But we've we're sort of done. I finished a few months ago. Actually, finished up Magic Order, um, and I've moved on to a second project, which I'm actually just finishing this Wednesday, just for Christmas. And then I'm starting a third project, which people don't know about yet, um, in the second week in January. So so we're well ahead. I mean, we're we're kind of about a project and a half ahead of the announcements wow. so that by the time something's announced i've kind of done it by that point and it's it's on to showrunners and all that kind of stuff you know yeah now now can you explain just a little bit about like the medium you'll be tackling because magic order is going to be a you know a book series right yes well what we're doing is, is it's actually been created as a television show um but part of my deal at netflix was that i wanted to keep doing comics because i love doing comics yeah so, so what they did when they bought um, Miller World was they basically bought everything. They bought our entire company, everything, everybody who worked for Miller World, they, 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 and they bought out all of us, you know, all the people who owns um, the creators, you know, who owned the copyright on everything. So we, the artists, myself, we all got bought out. And part of the deal also was, um, you know, me coming on and working at Netflix too, you know. So yeah. what I'm doing is I'm finishing uh, some projects, uh, like writing volumes two, volumes three, all that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, also creating a lot of new stuff as well. So yeah. I probably have a half of each. And because I, like I say, I love doing comics. I just said, like, can I do these as comics too? You know, and they were like, cool, yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. As long as you're happy. So I've just been, I've done the Magic Order comic, and uh, you know, life's kind of like as it was before in that sense. You know, it's going to be a nice combo of movies and comics, but. The content actually that, that you're going to see on screen, whether it's as a television show or as a movie, will be ramped up enormously because Netflix are so beautifully ambitious. You know, a studio maybe brings out 10, 14 projects a year. Yeah. Uh, Netflix, you know, there's a thousand hours of original material next year. Yeah. I mean, the rumor has it that they're, you know, like, I think they're spending around $8 billion on original content for this year. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely investing hardcore and in creating a ton of content. Um so, it feels kind of like Hollywood in the twenties, you know. It's got that feel where, you know, there's just a bunch of people excited sitting around the table saying, "Yeah, let's do this." And and you know, it, it doesn't feel like you know that horrible long development process that people have at yeah, studios. Yeah, seems to. And be... everybody's trying not to get fired at the studio and everything. What I, what <laughs> yeah. I love about the Netflix guys is, I mean, studios try not to make a movie because when a movie comes out and loses money, they get fired. You know. Yeah. And yeah. what I kind of love about Netflix is it's like a bunch of crazy entrepreneurs. You know, every single person who works at the company is a risk taker. So everybody's like, let's try this, you know. And, you know, it's almost like they're dating themselves to get fired. You know, I, I, just, yeah. I love it because it feels, I always say it, it feels the way a studio must have felt in 1925. It's like, it, it feels like they're just making up the rules as they go along in the best possible way. 
Yeah, it really seems like from everything I've read and, and from others who have worked there, it, it always kind of seems like as long as they buy into you, as long as they believe in your vision, that's all they yeah. kind of need to do. They, they will then put themselves behind you 110%, give you the resources you need, and you're off and running. There doesn't seem to be a lot of the red tape and bureaucracies and we have to focus group everything and everything. You know, It, it just seems like as long as they believe in what you're bringing to the table, you're golden. Yeah. But this sounds like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid now and everything, but it really is. It is like that. You know, like the way it works at studios tends to be, you know, they buy 20, 30 properties for every one thing they make and yeah. uh, and everybody agonizes over things and there's all these rewrites get done and things just end up, you know, not the way directors want them quite a lot. But, but Netflix is kind of like their big thing is they really think about who they want to buy, who they want to hire. And then they just let them run with it. They just think, well, if we've hired you, it's kind of the way Marvel was in the early days as well. Kind of, and the, the, the 10 years I was at Marvel, they used to be like that, yeah. where they kind of, they hire you and then trust you. And if you fail, they get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of like that, you know, like, I like the, the idea that they trust the creative people. And I think that's what's really exciting a lot of the, the directors and screenwriters and actors in as well, because it feels... It's our, it's our natural instinct, I think, to 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 take risks yeah. as as creatives, you know. And, and Netflix is the perfect environment for it. I'm, I must admit, this is my first actual job. I've, I've avoided working my entire life, and I'm actually loving it. I'm having a great time. Wow! Yeah, I bet it sounds like it. Um, now, look, I'm actually glad you brought up, you know, what it's like with like with the with the big studios, and I'm glad you brought up Marvel because I wanted to ask you, you know, last week's big news was the acquisition yeah. of you know Disney getting Fox, and what this means for Marvel and the cinematic universe. And you know, you had a very interesting take on it, you know, over on the Twitter. And mm. I was just wondering if we could expand on that a little bit. So, it, you know, sure. it does, it sounds like you're a little anxious about what this means, huh? I'm not anxious at all, actually. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm watch. I'm eating popcorn, watching <laughs> chaos, which I love. You know, I mean, I, I have zero anxiety. I actually, I love a drama. I love a drama. But like, um, but you know, I, I can see a lot of downsides, and I can't see much in the way of upsides. Like mm. to me. Seeing Reed Richards standing beside Tony Stark, you know, isn't good enough. You know, it's like that's not yeah. that exciting to me. You know, like yeah, I can yeah, yeah. I can enjoy those two those two characters existing, you know, in separate movies. I don't need to see them together that much. That I'd be prepared to see one of the big six studios go down essentially. You know, yeah. And and I just think as a writer, you know, I I I I love playing studios off one another. I mean, I don't do it now because I'm at one place, but but when I was freelance. Um, it's great, you know. To, if you can, if you can go to Disney and say, "Listen, Fox are going to pay this for this," you know, yeah. then it's fantastic, you know. For 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 creative people, it's good to have as many possible outlets as possible. So to see them all start to form into super conglomerates and everything, I I just don't think it's a healthy thing. Um, and I also, I, I, like I say, you know, I I feel as if from an audience point of view. It, something actually becomes very difficult to understand if we get too many characters all crossing over with each other. I think part of the success of what made Marvel work in the previous decade, the, the sort of building blocks of what we have now, was the accessibility of it all. Whereas if everything starts to look like a comic book crossover, that's how the comic book industry collapsed in the 90s and, and, and how Marvel's not been doing so well over the last few years in publishing terms either. Because mainstream audiences feel alienated when they don't understand what's going on. So as much as Fans, you know, people like me who've read comics all their lives, yeah, it is cool, you know, to see 40 characters on screen. Yeah. If you're newbie to this, it's, it's kind of baffling to you. So I, I, I don't really see a massive strength in having everything all sort of mashed up like this. I think there was there was a definite strength in having them spread out. And I'm utterly convinced that will mean less movies and also less chances as well because 
Disney have a huge slate now. They've got a lot of stuff to get out there. If they had had Fantastic Four ten years ago, would they have started thinking about a Guardians of the Galaxy movie? Yeah, probably, yeah, you know? that's a great point. That, that Doctor Strange would probably have been unthinkable if they had their hands on Wolverine. You know, yeah. so so I, I just think we were probably very well served having these things scattered around the studios like that. But you know, I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to work. These guys are these guys are smart. You know, like uh, Fig, he's done a, a really good job so far. Um, but I don't know. Maybe this is the the beginning of them peaking. I don't know. I mean, everything has a natural end, but I do think we're some years off it yet because I think they're going to be replenished before the peak. I think the X Men has always struggled to get over the five hundred million in terms of box office. Yeah. Um, but in terms of all the all those X Men movies, when you look at all nine of them, um, but I think Marvel could probably take them towards the billion. I think they would play it very, very well, and and it'd be very exciting to see who the new Wolverine is and so on, and to see Fantastic Four done well. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, in the 2020s, can they sustain it? Will it become more of a fan thing? I don't know. But yeah. but the big, the big thing for me is seeing people I like at Fox losing their jobs, and I, I can't see how that can be avoided when you merge two companies. I think it's going to be like a takeover. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, let me ask you, since you brought up like X-Men and getting kind of getting to see them perhaps sort of done right. So it seems like you already answered this, but just to be clear – in terms of incorporating them into things, like how how would you like to see them handle it? Would you like to see them reboot the property or would you like to see them somehow integrate the current form, like with McAvoy and Fassbender and all that, somehow integrate them or just reboot it and start from you know, fresh? Well, I wouldn't say X-Men's been done wrong, actually. I think X-Men's been done very well. It was Fantastic Four, yeah. I think, um, could be done right. But like uh, the X-Men, I would say... At least half of those movies have been excellent. You know, like yeah. I love X One, I love X Two, X Men mm-hmm. First Class, Days of Future Past. Yeah, two, two of the Wolverine movies have been very good as well. But um, but in terms of how they would they would reboot, I think Spider Man Homecoming is a very good template because you don't you didn't feel bored, you didn't feel you were seeing Uncle Ben getting shot again, which I was kind of worried about. You know, yeah. I just thought we can't see that origin all over again. And they did it very well. They just they made it a very soft reboot. You knew it was something different, but it, and it felt very fresh. But there wasn't a lot of catching up as well. Yeah. So I'd imagine they'd go the same way. I'd imagine World War Two, um, Magneto's story in World War Two is probably going to have to change as well because it's now so long ago. We're talking twenty years since Ian McKellen had those yeah. scenes. Yeah. So I don't know. They're, I don't know if they're going to update this stuff. But I mean, I'm I'm entirely speculating, just like everybody else. You know, yeah. I, I'm not sure how they'll do it, but I know that. One of the, the, the side effects will be, I think, their box office will go up. You know, if they want to get more money, they put Robert Downey Jr. beside these characters. And, and that's what's going to happen here. Like Captain America went over the billion by putting Robert Downey Jr. in it. Spider-Man hit 850 with Robert yeah. Downey Jr. You know? And I'm sure Robert Downey Jr. is going to be facing off against Magneto at some point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that would be interesting. Yeah. Um so now, okay, so now I'm going to totally shift gears because I know I've got you on a bit of a time crunch and there's so many different topics I want to cover. And I actually want to get to Star Wars in a, in a few. Mm-hmm. But before we do, see, I have to touch on something because I am a gigantic Superman nerd. Oh, great. And I remember that in 2008, you, you know, there was like a famous pitch you made where you went to Warner Brothers and you pitched a Superman trilogy alongside Matthew Vaughn. Is that correct? Well, no, we, we didn't actually pitch it. What it was was Matthew phoned me up and he said to me, did you not have a Superman idea? 
And I was like, I've got, I love Superman. I've got a million Superman ideas. And he said, would you be interested in coming in and sort of like telling that, that idea to um, to Warner Brothers? He said, because Kick-Ass, I think, um, around that time, we'd, I can't remember if we'd started filming Kick-Ass or it had been finished, but Matthew and I had a good relationship going and we knew we were going to work together for a long time. And Matthew said to me, you know, I remember you telling me in the pub you had this idea for a sort of three-picture Superman thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but nobody ever heard it. I told Matthew a little bit of it, and Matthew loved it. And then he said to Warner Brothers, listen, would you be interested in bringing Mark Miller in? And they said, not really, no. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was, was, um, you know, they said, he's a Marvel guy, you know, like he's under contract at Marvel. There's no way we're going to disrespect our, our own people, you know, by, yeah. by bringing in a Marvel guy. And I said to Matthew, well, that's fair enough. You know, I, I understand, you know, yeah. but, you know, Matthew and I talked about it and like, uh, the idea I told him was a Superman picture that was, it began at the beginning of time and it ended at the end of time. And it was going to be Superman's story, you know, his life story, uh, starting with the, the formation of like the Council on Krypton and everything way, 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 way back. Um, and like, uh, you know, running to Superman's death, which would be obviously whenever the stars go out, you know, because by that yeah, point. He, and he would essentially be like the last living being on Earth. Yes, he would outlive yeah, everyone. So it would be yeah, like that, a sort that was of tragic ending. Um, I'm sure somebody at DC will swipe me now on this, you know, but like, uh, but that's, it was essentially that story, but I had a gigantic, gigantic trilogy of stories in amongst it all that had dark side in it and everything. It was like, it was a big, big, big three pictures it thing. And I wanted to like it. Yeah. Well, do something that felt a bit like the Godfather for Superman, you know, something that starts with like young Michael Corleone and then you eventually see him die as an old man. I wanted to do something that covered everything and it was everything i wanted to say about superman but um but it never happens and uh, and we did other stuff instead but um you know it's always there in my back in my mind you know i mean i'm, I'm going to be busy for the next few years but at some point i'll maybe do it as a graphic novel just maybe frank quietly and i or brian hitch and i or something we'll maybe get together and do it as a graphic novel or something i would love that yeah please oh, do I love it. Superman, he's, a, he's my favorite character it's uh i mean as a kid everybody else used to their heroes used to be footballers and things like that, you know, and like my my hero was Superman, you know, so yeah. like, I don't know how I didn't get beaten up every day, you know, but I just have always loved Superman. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's funny because I guess, you know, it, it, things are always like a game of telephone where, you know, you hear something and then it morphs into something bigger by the time it reaches, you know, the press. Because it, it was always sort of presented as, you know, Miller pitched this movie to Warner Brothers. So it never actually made it that far, huh? You spoke to Matthew I, about I've it. I've never made it was it. in my life. I've, I've always thought, I remember hearing from friends, oh my God, it's so humiliating going in and doing a pitch. And I just always thought it's a bit like it's too needy for me, you know. Like I don't know. I think I'd be too embarrassed to actually yeah. sit in there and pitch somebody. I think, look, if you want me to do this, just hire me to do it. You know, it's like I, I think going in and actually trying to convince somebody, it's a bit like begging someone to go on a date with you. You know, so I, just, <laughs> yeah. I, never, I never really fancied it. You know, so I mean, honestly, it's funny because I've seen so many variations of this report, and. Some people said, uh, oh, yeah, Warner Brothers hated Miller's uh, take and all that. It's like they never heard anything. They just said, would you like to work? And then other people said to me, yeah, I read Matt Miller's uh, synopsis. It's terrible. And, and then other people said, it's the, be- it's the best thing he's ever done. It's a shame it never happened. And all, nothing is written down. There's like literally nothing. Yeah, wow. Well, now I'm, I'm really hoping you get around to making that graphic novel. Um, but now, so as for, cool. it could be cool. So I hope someone listening makes that happen. But listen. 
Um, <laughs> in terms of now, you know, because you know your mate, you know Matthew, is uh-huh. you know, a few months ago he kind of pap- he popped back up on like the Superman radar and kind of re- yeah. revealed that he was having some conversations with Warner Brothers again about Superman possibly doing you know Man of Steel two the follow up. You know, do, have you heard anything about that? Would you be willing to kind of let us know? Uh, well, I think, there's any I think updates there? I mean, there's like there's ten guys, you know, who are, who are at the top of everyone's list. It's like the the, the normal thing, you know. Like uh, I would say, guys actually, I mean, guys in the kind of broad sense, you know, women, yeah. obviously, you know. But it's like there's there's ten directors who everybody's chasing at any one time, you know. And yeah, they'll talk about them for a Star Wars movie. They'll talk about them for a Marvel movie. I mean, yeah. Matthew's approach for everything. So Superman was one of those things, and he and I are massive Superman fans. I mean, we we worship Richard Donner. We love the Christopher Reeve movies. We're both about the same age, into all the same stuff. So yeah. he, he actually phoned me up a few months ago and he said, hey, listen, DC, they're very interested in me doing Man of Steel 2. Do you want to come in and do this? And I was like, I'm exclusive to Netflix for, for years. that we, we can't even have that conversation. Oh. And he was like, oh, man, what's the chances of this? You know. So then it kind of drifted away and he's attached himself to a couple of things and all that. You know. So it's one of those things that might, I mean, if somebody phones Matthew up and offers him enough money, it could all change tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> 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 do, do, do you think he would consider trying to incorporate some of those ideas that you had discussed 10 years ago or probably well, go someplace different? He doesn't know enough of them. He actually just remembers little bits of it. Yeah. You know, so, cause that would be my worry, you know, but yeah. like, uh, but he, he doesn't really remember much except I, I told him one thing. I told him one thing and, and he remembered that, but I mean the, the whole broad thing, I mean, I, I've got stuff handwritten that I've had down for years, just in a big folder. I've got this just Superman ideas. I've got, I've got all these folders all over the house. Like I've got like green arrow ideas. I've got like, you know, green lantern ideas and things. I've got like obscure stuff, you know, yeah. that you even have heard of ideas and the stuff's just all lying there. And at some point in the future, I'll write them. And, and I've got a gigantic Superman folder, like I say, but nothing's ever been typed up. You know, so that's he really knows what my plans are, so nobody can swipe me. (laughs) Okay, all right, because you know, because it's funny because he he did say, you know, like you mentioned being Donner fans, and because he he addressed that, you know, back in September, saying that like he would almost want to make like a modern version of the Donner Superman, and he wants it to be colorful and heroic and very quote unquote feel good. And then when you when I thought about that juxtaposed with with uh, your, your very sort of dark sounding trilogy, I'm like, I wonder which way he's going to go with it. Oh, no, my thing absolutely wasn't dark. Sorry. I mean, that's th- this is why I'd be terrible in a picture yeah. because it's, it's, that does sound dark, you know, the death of Superman. Yeah. But it was actually a massive, uplifting, hopeful thing. Like every single minute of it, you were going mm. to feel amazing because there's no point doing Superman unless you feel good. Like you should walk out of Superman just feeling like a million dollars, you know, you yeah. should feel great after a Superman film. So the way it was going to be was just the end of time. You don't see Superman die or anything. It was just going to be that was the end, you know, as yeah. the stars are going out. But like, but the movie itself was just going to be a big, vast, fun epic. But Superman's got to be a laugh as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's. I feel the, like the movies were, were so charming, and that's the tone I would absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel like what you just said should have been part of the pitch. You're like, like <laughs> if you ever get to do it, just just go in and say, "Listen, every minute of it, you're going to feel amazing," <laughs> and that's all. <laughs> that's all they need to hear. Um, okay, so look, I know I've, I've got I've got you for limited time now. I, I I took that Superman detour. I wanted to talk Star Wars with you. I know everyone always tries to pick your brain about you know your books and your movies, and I want to give you yeah. a chance to just vent about something as a fan. So you've seen yeah. the Last Jedi. I've seen the Last Jedi. You know, we're allowed to go into spoilers here now that we're after opening weekend. So mm-hmm. you know, what did you what did you think of Star Wars: The Last Jedi? I loved it, and and. You know, I hate to show off. I mean, this is like one of these 
horrific um, Hollywood conversations. But like, I went with Mark Hamill. He and I were sitting together watching the movie, oh, the, the premiere in London. And uh, and I had to I I just squeezed that into the conversation even even if you hadn't asked me you know but like <laughs> you know yeah but it was you know your your enjoyment is actually increased ten thousand times if you're sitting with Luke Skywalker I would him, say like, so yeah I mean it genuinely was one of the best nights ever and Mark and I are good friends we've known each other quite a few years now and like um you know he was in Kingsman and we became really pally a couple of years before that um I never go to LA without going for a drink with Mark really you know yeah um but. Uh, he had us at Force Awakens, and uh, and I, I loved it. I mean, it was just such a great experience. I I was sitting with Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, and Mark Hamill. You know, it was like insane watching Star Wars like that. Unbelievable! And I almost couldn't concentrate in the movie because I was so excited, like genuinely just loving it. You know, yeah. but like, um, but I think I, I preferred this actually because for me it was always Luke. You know, and because Mark's a pal, but nevertheless, even just Luke was my first hero you know like even before superman 1977 i saw star wars when i was seven yeah and i dressed up as luke skywalker i didn't dress up as han solo i dressed up as luke skywalker yeah. i had pictures of luke skywalker i had posters everywhere so to see him with r2 and him with 3po and a little bit with yoda and everything this felt like star wars to me again and seeing mark's face so big on that poster i was yeah i was really happy it was a great night and it was a free bar after it it was amazing <laughs> Well, and then that, that, that never hurts. Um, so just in terms of the film itself, so, you're, so you enjoyed it more than The Force Awakens? Yeah, I think I did. I think I did. Like, um, they were both good, though. It's funny. Like, I, I've only seen The Force Awakens once. Yeah. And then I watched it with the kids again um, at the weekend. Like, um, my six-year-old hadn't seen it. Uh, she was always a little scared of it, actually. You know, although she, she loves sci-fi and she loves superheroes. But like um, she was never that keen because aliens look a little bit like monsters, you know. Yeah. But um, but I stuck it on for her, and I think having a female lead really helped her. Like she she was less keen on Star Wars and Empire, um, but I think having Ray was a sort of an interface for her with the with the movie, you know. And she she absolutely loved it. It was great. Yeah. And I'd forgotten how good it was. I actually really liked it, but I think I still prefer um, Ryan's movie. Yeah. So what did you think of some of like the big, you know, surprises, the big twists, you know, like obviously so much stock had been put into the idea that Ray's parentage must be something mystical and something larger than life, that she must belong to one of the big bloodlines, be it the Kenobis or the Skywalkers or the Solos. Yeah. You know, what did you think of Ryan's decision to just go, no, you're the son of, you're the daughter of no one in particular. Well, I mean, I've no insider info in this because I never, I never asked Mark or anyone else I know involved in Star Wars any secrets because it'd be so uncool to, to do that, you know? Yeah. But my suspicion is that Adam Driver's character is lying, you know, mm. and I, I I am utterly convinced it's his sister. I'm utterly convinced. That's what I think too, yeah. Yeah, because I think if there's one guy you're not going to trust his word, it's Kylo Ren. Absolutely. It's like, you know, why would you believe this guy, you know? Plus, I just think if, it, if they were just nobodies, you know, it's – it just wouldn't have that punch, you know. I think you've got to have the punch in the gut uh, where you think they're nobody's so that then when you hear, hang on, it's brother versus sister, then the ante is raised in the third movie. That's just my guess as a fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's my but guess and it's my hope. No and when it, funnily enough, when I was watching Force Awakens with the kids at the weekend, um, there was definitely something, you know, when you, the, the way that Han Solo, who kind of hates everybody, 
warmed yeah. so quickly to Ray. When I watched it again, I thought, yeah, that's definitely, he knows that's his kid. Yeah. yeah. You see, I'm totally with you there. I'm glad you said that. I, I, I have a feeling that we're going to find out in episode nine, you know, written and directed by J.J. Uh, Abrams, that they're going to backpedal on that just a tad. And they're going to say that, you know, Kylo was essentially just trying to get into her head and, and trying to get her over to his side. Um, and then the exactly. Other, I mean, he's deceitful, yeah. So. Yeah. And then, you know, he obviously, was great, by the way, he was, well, how oh, great was Adam Driver in that movie? I love Adam Driver. Yeah. Amazing. I think he's very underrated too. I feel like I've seen him in like four or five different films and he's a completely different person in each one. He's just very, very talented. Well, it was funny. I was sitting with all the actors last week when I was watching it and like, um, I was sitting with Frank Oz, you know, who, who I worship, right? It's like, he's like the nicest guy. He was, he was really funny, just really charming. And I saw him when the Yoda scene came on, he was watching it kind of leaning forward and, you know, really kind of the way all actors are, just hope, hoping it's good and everything. And then Mark scenes, Mark was really kind of leaning forward watching that. And I was looking around at Daisy Ridley and she was, and then I looked around at Adam Driver and all of his scenes, he was just sitting back thinking, yeah, this is awesome. Like he knew he was great. It was really, he had, he had this incredible confidence that I've never seen in an actor before. He was, he was just sitting eating Maltesers, and <laughs> sweets we have over here. And he was just sitting eating them and like, he was just smiling and you could tell he was, he, he knew, he knew he'd done a great job. You know, yeah. Quite right. Yeah. Um, now, and what about you? Know, and then the other big thing is obviously, you know, we lost Han Solo in yeah. The Force Awakens, and now they, you know, we've now lost Luke. You know, how, how did you feel about Luke's passing in the third act of this film? I've got to say, the one thing that does make me a little bit nervous is these characters going because we remember how much we love them when we see them again. And it's a hell of a thing to put on the shoulders of all the new characters because. Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, it's like, these characters don't come along all the time. I know. You know, like, that was lightning in three bottles. You know, yeah. that's like, uh, that's three great characters and our favorite as well. And R2 and 3PO. I mean, for all the criticisms that Lucas gets, my God, he created some amazing characters oh God, with those actors. Ever, you know, yes. it's amazing what he did. And it's really hard to create a cultural phenomenon all over again with, with new actors and new characters. So it's going to be, I think, uh, no matter how good they are, no matter how good they're made, it's going to be so hard to do these movies, I think, after all those people that we grew up with are gone. You know, yeah. it's, it's a bit like, I hope it doesn't feel like, you know, we've stuck around after the party, you know, but like, yeah. you know, so far, so far I, I didn't enjoy Rogue One. I didn't really think that was a very good film. Um so, so they can put a foot wrong, just like Marvel can put a foot wrong. I mean, Mar Marvel missed sometimes too, you know. So, yeah, of course. But, but hope, fingers crossed, you know, this this all goes well after the next one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, okay. <clears throat> I know you probably can't say this because you know you get in trouble. But do you know if if Mark is expected back to do some Force Ghost work in Episode Nine? <laughs> oh man, that's that's. I would be shot dead if I said that. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> you know, weirdly, if it was a company, I would tell you. But when it's a friend, I could never, I could of never course. say. You know, okay. but like, yeah, uh, but yeah. I mean, that, that must be the question at the moment, right now, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that would be the best headline ever if I give the answer. Because I've got to be perfectly honest. You know, I'm, I'm, I echo your your concerns about what this means now, because you know, now Han is gone and Luke is gone, and we know, you yeah. know, unfortunately, because of real life tragedy, yeah. you know, Leia is essentially gone. 
So, you know, I'm really anxious about the fact that they allowed Luke to, to get killed off in this. And I just feel like, I don't know, maybe this is just selfish of me, but I really wanted more time with Luke. I feel like, I, I, similar to you, he was mm-hmm. always my favorite. You know, other people have gravitated towards Han Solo because he's sarcastic and he's the cool guy and whatever. I was always a Luke person. So I came into this wanting to get like just a huge fill on him and to really kind of have my mind melted and blown by Luke and I kind of felt like we didn't get to dig in nearly deeply enough. And now he's gone. You know, I just, I I'm worried. I'm worried. Dude, wait, you know what? Though? It's so funny because I have this conversation with pals all the time. And I remember as a kid, we all loved Luke, right? When I was seven and I saw Star Wars, we loved Han. I mean, who, who doesn't love Han? Yeah. But Luke was everybody's hero. And we, we all bought the toy of Luke before we bought the toy of Han and everything, you know? Yeah. And But what I think is interesting is people have retconned their own lives to sound cooler. And I, a lot of my friends now say, oh, yeah, I always loved Han Solo because he's the badass. You know, he's kind of sarcastic. And I was like, no, I remember, I remember you loved Luke Skywalker most. You know, yeah. And it's funny, it became so fashionable by the time you hit your teens to prefer Han Solo, didn't it? Yeah. That you forget that Luke, Luke is the star of those movies. I mean, it starts off with a farm boy who becomes a Jedi master. You know, so that's the, the arc of Luke's story is the arc of Star Wars or across those three movies. And, yeah. I mean, he does the cool stuff. He blows up the Death Star. He redeems Darth Vader. He, you know. Yeah. He, he does all the cool stuff. He fights Darth Vader in that great scene in the second one, you know, loses his hands. It's like, you know, there's no denying that his movies, you know. So I think that's why I liked Last Jedi so much that it felt like the guy this franchise belonged to was back. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Well, look, Mark, I, uh, I'm thrilled to the gills that you took the time to, to chat with me today about all the different things that we covered. I mean, really, we, we covered a lot of ground in a half hour. So we're very, we're very good at this. We're very good. <laughs> <laughs> so really, thanks for coming on. I hope to have you on again at some point in the future. I hope everyone is keeping a close eye on what Miller World and Netflix are cooking up because it sounds insanely exciting and ambitious. Well, I think what's exciting is, like I say, we hit the ground running, you know, so whenever an, an announcement comes in the new year, it's going to be followed by like three other announcements, you know, so I mean, it's, it's what's happening over there is insane. It's actually nuts, like just how many things we're, we're, we're planning and what the people we're talking to. I think people are going to be so blown away by it because I did a call last week with all the television and all the, the film people on yeah. one call. And just when I was writing it down, because we were doing a conference call, I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't wait to come off the phone and tell my wife. You know, I was like, this is insane. Believe what the plan is here, you know. It's like, uh, yeah, I can't wait to share it with everyone. I mean, and honestly, I I know you got to go, but this is a bit of a coup by Netflix getting you. Because honestly, just from my perspective, you know, outside of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, I have a very hard time thinking of any comic book writers who've had more of their work adapted into films, who've had more of that crossover from book to you know cinema yeah, and, and now television like you know so them getting you i think is just like they they this is it's a steal you know it, so it's very kind of you say you know but i mean i i i'm having a great time I, I just really like them when i walked into the room lucy and i walked into the room you know just over a year ago when we first started speaking to them yeah and i just instantly felt like these are these are the people you know they were great like everybody was just funny and you know they just seemed like people like us yeah and i they were really, really smart. They're probably smarter than us, you know. Really smart and had great grand plans. And it just—I I thought this is this is going to be a perfect marriage. And and it has. I mean, I've been in the office now for several months, and and I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. 
And I just got to ask, I, I, I keep on extending this, but I'm just so thrilled to have you here. Just in terms of like, you know, in discussing how the fact that so much of your work inevitably gets you know, adapted, I'm just yeah. curious, by this point, has that affected your writing process when you're developing a book? Like as you write, are you thinking about, well, this is inevitably going to become a, a movie or a TV show, so I need to tailor it a certain way? Do you know, you, you never do. It's, it's funny, like whatever people do. I mean, I see pals doing that, and I always think, "Oh, don't, don't, don't go there," you know, because what you end up with is something that looks like a bad two-dimensional TV show or, t- or movie. Yeah, you know? yeah. What you've got to do is just do a good comic, try and make the comic good. But what I do now actually is different because working at Netflix, I'm developing these things as movies and as television shows. Yeah. Um, so this is the first time, and then I'll do a comic of them. But to be honest, budgets are so good now that there's nothing you can do in a comic that you can't do in a movie or a TV show and technology is so great like you're you're not limited anymore which is amazing it's not like doing the old Hulk TV show or something but I'd probably be you know having him maybe jump through a wall or something like yeah. that you know now, now you can do anything you can have universes collapsing in one scene of a television show now it's, it's amazing <laughs> absolutely yeah. true wow alright well Mark once again Thank you so much for coming on, and I hope to have you on again soon. And, and hopefully, may 2018 be as amazing for you as 2017 was. Oh, thanks very much. Thank you. And th- thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. So that was certainly a hell of a time getting to speak to him about all that. I mean, it's, it's crazy for me to go from, you know, back in 2008, reading all about this stuff that he was talking about for what he had wanted to do with the you know the Superman trilogy with Matthew Vaughn and all that stuff, to then actually get to sit and pick his brain about it. I mean, geez, my brain is melting. It was, it was, uh, it was really just uh, an incredible experience to get to speak to him. And um, yeah, so now let's kind of keep it going. Let's keep it going. I also had another phenomenal conversation as always with mr dave gonzalez it's all star wars based it's all last jedi spoilers so i don't want to keep you waiting i know some of you have been dying to hear some you know getting dirty and nitty-gritty with the last jedi so here we go So for this special, you know, Star Wars wrap-up I want to do now that we're officially on the other side of the release of Star Wars The Last Jedi, I really couldn't think of a better person to bring on to really kind of dissect in a very sort of spoilerish, very sort of super geeky way than my old Latino review cohort and super Star Wars, uh, I don't know, geek nerd fanatic uh, of the Storm of Spoilers podcast, Mr. Dave Gonzalez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the age of Star Wars being ruined. Uh, you know, last week everything was fine, and now everything's on fire. Everything is on fire. It's like a, it's like a star destroyer just crashing into the atmosphere right now. Okay. Um, no, you know, it's something I mentioned earlier is that I'm kind of glad I saw it a second time. Because the first time I saw it on Friday, that's kind of that was how I was feeling. I was feeling very sort of negative and very sort of down about Star Wars. On a second viewing last night, I don't. The negatives are are not quite as prominent anymore, and I actually uh, some I enjoyed it more. But let me ask you, like, what is your take on the film? I haven't really been monitoring your Twitter. I, I wanted to save this for this conversation. So, what 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 Ooh. is your take on the Last Jedi? So it definitely is something that in, improves the more 
I mean, if you could see it a second time, great. But even if you just spend time thinking about it, I think the movie improves. I was lucky enough to see it at the world premiere in Los Angeles. So I was completely untainted in my initial reactions, (laughs) which were that is going to be the most divisive Star Wars movie. And it's also going to make all of the money. And thus far, that's held up. Um, I think it's super shocking in terms of, especially right after uh, The Last Jedi and how, I mean, inter- after The Force Awakens and how different The Last Jedi is from what we expect in the Star Wars movie, it's very much similar to um, how people historically felt after like Empire Strikes Back, which over time became people's favorite uh, Star Wars movie. But at the beginning, everybody was like, oh man, so now The Force can just, you know, move things through the air. It's, it's like a super <laughs> magic power because it used to be just... Choking maybe was the only thing we saw the force actually be used for in A New Hope. I've had a lot of arguments about, you know, whether or not that uh, missile that Luke fires is redirected by the force or not. Ah. So it goes from like a weird religion to Empire and Return of the Jedi sort of like solidifying in this light versus dark. Uh, the Last Jedi, on the other hand, takes all of those things and makes it much more gray. We're much more interested in the Kylo Ren uh, Ray dichotomy. And I think successfully this movie manages to maybe also time but successfully this movie manages to make the dark side more alluring from kylo ren's perspective than it was in the uh first movie so the first the force awakens is good but kylo ren is definitely jonesing too hard on wanting to be darth vader and thinking that he needs to kill his father to do that and that's a nice you know little contained story but here i really think now that he's grown beyond that it was time to do, you know, what they do with Snoke and basically take him out. And like the Emperor only let him have two movies so we could focus our last movie on the what really matters in the Star Wars universe, which I think at this point is going to be all that war between Kylo Ren and Rey. I don't think that J.J. Abrams is going to come back and try to re-mystery box it uh, just because I think that would throw out the weird trilogy. But yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's the first time I saw it because I was so invested in what I thought it was going to be. I was so interested in Ray and Luke that um, I didn't give a lot of the Poe Holdo story and the Finn Rose story the time of day. And so I still think that maybe the movie's 20 to 30 minutes too long. And the only reason it's going to end up getting away with it is because when you get a Star Wars saga movie every two years, that movie has to last for two years of enjoying it. So in the end, I'm going to be happy that we had Canto Bite. The first time through it, I kept being like, why are we not going back to the island? I feel (laughs) like the more important things are happening on the island. And it's not until after you've seen the movie and you realize that it's all building to basically a nonstop 45 minute climax at the end that you realize all these pieces sort of need to go where they need to go in order for Poe to uh, take leadership and in order for Finn to go from running away to being willing to sacrifice himself. So it's all there and it all works very well together. There's a ton of little Easter eggs. So I, I like that. Uh, your second viewing made it better. I think the more times you get to see this movie, the more it reveals itself to be a very complete and bold work. Um, whether or not that's going to be your cup of tea yeah. after multiple viewings is still going you know, to going to be personal decisions. But in terms of like a movie, it's so well put together that I was talking to my fighting in the war room co-hosts uh, last night. And we were like, up until seeing the last Jedi the narrative behind Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm was that they were too hands-on. Like they went in, they changed uh, Rogue One under Gareth Edwards. They obviously kicked Lord Miller off solo and replaced it 
with Ron Howard. But yeah. now having seen The Last Jedi and seen what it was like capable of getting away with, now we have to put up the option that maybe those were just bad movies and maybe they <laughs> saw them coming and were like, no, let's try to pivot out of bad movies because they're not as precious about what makes Star Wars as we thought. This is the first movie that did not use Darth Vader in its advertising to sell the movie ever all star wars movies like hinge on that character being the character that you could visually recognize as signaling a star wars movie this one isn't it's just white and red and it's our new characters and it's grizzled luke who some people you know are mad about because you know jedi aren't supposed to give up but that's the whole thing the movie's about destroying the preconceptions of what the characters thought the Jedi should do, what the characters thought a rebellion should be. So we as an audience are supposed to go with it. Or as uh, Master Yoda says in the movie, uh, we are what they grow beyond. And that is the yes. burden of all masters. You know, well, I mean, you just covered a lot of ground. I have to try to like backpedal. <laughs> There's so many different things I wanted to go. Oh, yeah, me too. Or no, you're insane. But let's see, just off the top of my head there, you know, um, yeah. I do have a feeling because, you know, I, I got the same sense, too, that Kathleen Kennedy and them, they were sort of hands off with Ryan Johnson on this. And that is sort of refreshing. He seemed to really be able to make the movie that he wants and you know, with, with minimal meddling. But a part of me thinks that there is a certain amount of like they knew that one of the big complaints about the force awakens was the fact that it was a rehash. So I almost feel like this is somewhat reactionary to that where they're like, all right, this seems very different and we don't really know if it's awesome, but we know that it's different and people are clamoring for different. So we're, we, you know, we're going to go let you make your different movie. You know what I mean? Like I kind of look at it that way. Like it, it is in a, in its own way, sort of reactionary to the force awakens because they, they wanted something that didn't feel safe, that, that felt like it was going out on a limb. And since Johnson sort of offered them that they were kind of like, you know, like I just feel like maybe it's, it's on purpose. They're like, all right, you know what? Screw it. Go for it. Let's see how people like this. You know? Well, I mean, it might be, but it was uh, like the script was completed before The Force Awakens premiered. Yeah. So Johnson was working on it, just having an idea of what the movie was going to be. Then the movie came out and there was a little rewrite. Um, you know, much like The Force Awakens production shut down, we probably will never know exactly what that little rewrite entailed. Uh, yeah. Apparently, you know, like Poe wasn't uh, going to make it out of The Force Awakens way back when. But um, I think that... Like whether or not it is a reactionary move by Disney, the marketing department, Ryan Johnson and Ron Bergman, his producer, sat somewhere in a room and came up with this and were willing to be like, <clears throat> we're going to do uh, Empire Strikes Back in reverse. So we're going to start <laughs> with the we're going to end with the planet battle instead of starting with the planet battle. But the middle still the chase. Yeah. And, you know, we still have our... Well, we're still going to open uh, with the rebels having to escape their, their their base, by the way. And we're still going to have a guy in the middle who seems like your friend but then betrays you. Yeah, so there are, there oh, are yeah. some definite touchstones there that are very similar to Empire. And um, it wasn't until after the movie came out that Ryan Johnson started saying the George Lucas line in interviews, which is that the movies rhyme. They're not so much, you know, rip-offs, but, like, they're sort of rhyming. So... Yeah. This movie does, I think, more with that conscious idea than The Force Awakens does. Yeah. Like the uh, Snoke, Rey, um, Kylo scene, like straight up. The second you realize it's a redo of Return of the Jedi, the Emperor's theme actually comes into the score. Yeah. So it's definitely aware of every time that it's 
retreading versus when it's not. Yeah, I, I don't know. Just see, so one of the things that for me I found so like like jarring the first time I saw it was the seeming sort of middle finger that Ryan gave a lot of the things that Abrams set up. Like he just really kind of seemed to just go, all right, I see where you're going with this, but screw that. You know, there are a few examples of that, but like, like, first of all, you know, in terms of Ray's parentage, you, you got to know that on some level, JJ would have preferred that it went something more like what we're used to, where she's going to be Luke's daughter or Kylo's sister or Obi-Wan's granddaughter or daughter. You, know, you, you have to know, based on what sort of what he's into as a filmmaker and sort of what he did with Force Awakens, he was more than likely trying to set that up to go in a very particular way. I mean, the way that little sequence happens when she touches, when she specifically touches and Anakin's lightsaber, that's where all that stuff runs, you know, rushes into her consciousness. Like, you know, he was definitely going somewhere with that. And Ryan was just like, no, we're, um, we're not going that way. I have a, I have a different idea that I like better. And that's what we're going to do. You know, and I mean, me, that's a reading of it. But Daisy Ridley also said when she read the Force Awakens script, she didn't think whose Ray's parents were, was a question. So I think Ray's parents and Snoke's identity getting so much put on it is a reaction of us to the film. Like J.J. Abrams makes mystery boxes. The Knights yeah. of Ren is the only thing that I'm going to say is like the actual mystery box that he was like hoping somebody else would open. Yeah. And Ryan Johnson was like, no, you know what? We're not even going to we're not even going to touch that. That whole like in the rain, like stabbing yeah, sequence. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even going to tell you when that happened. I'm not going to tell you like that's that's not interesting to me. Yeah. The Knights of Ren so, are practically retconned here. Right. So I think, I, I mean, it'll be interesting. We're, we're in the moment where we're debating about the shape of a trilogy in the second part. So like imagine being after empire and trying to figure out what the original trilogy is going to be like, Yeah. being like, yeah, of course, you know, maybe I'm going to see this or whatever, but like what we got was the seventh death star and teddy bear warriors, which is, you know, good or bad depending on your thing, but not at all what anybody was expecting. Yeah. So I, I think the Ray, the Ray, uh, nobody theory for this movie works really well Yeah. because Ray can't be told exactly just, what her place and everything is. If she's like your Luke Skywalker's daughter, then it doesn't become, she needs to learn who the Jedi are. It becomes, I need to, you know, take on the mantle of my father. And that seems simpler because that's what she wants. She wants a family line to tell her what her place is and what she's supposed to be doing. The interesting thing about the force is the force seems to have, fucked off with this chosen one idea it did not work out yeah over the like multiple years maybe the force shouldn't be making babies maybe what the force should be doing is like the conclusion of buffy the vampire slayer <laughs> giving that power to more people instead of having everything rest on one person so i like the idea that snoke was very powerful in the force but too narrow-minded to think that there would be more than one possibility on the light that was going to rise to face Kylo Ren. And he assumed it was going to be Luke, and then he saw it was Ray, and he assumed it was just going to be Ray. And then we end on Broom Kid, and we're like, oh no, the Force is out to make balance, however, the Force is going to make balance. Yeah. Whether or not J.J. Abrams goes back and makes Ray's parents important, it's the same thing with Snoke. It's like uh, the fact that I know the backstory of every alien in the cantina in A New Hope means that eventually <laughs> we're going to have a short story about Ray's parents. I don't know who they are, but we're going to get it. And like the fact that at the end of Return of the Jedi, the Emperor is just a wrinkly guy who kept trying to make the huge planet laser twice and failed two times to Luke Skywalker 
then we got a whole prequel trilogy about who that guy was, and then we got Operation Cinder about how he made all of these plans, and then we got yeah, Plagueis, yeah. So which they, was they about always how he's mine, like the King Sith. Yeah, they always mine all these things to death and expand upon them infinitely. So, you know, you're right. You're right. We're, 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 we're going to find out more about all this stuff and see what actually ends up making the canon and what doesn't. How would you feel, by the way, if Abrams does decide to sort of retcon that, like re-retcon it, and say, like, oh, Kylo was just messing with Rey when he said that. That you know, He knew that he needed to make her feel vulnerable and scared and like nothing so that she could, you know, be more open to teaming up with him. But in actuality, she is, you know, someone's daughter or his sister or something. Like. How would you feel if they did do that in episode nine? I mean, I think it'd be great, but you need to retailer the story around that idea. So, yeah, like it now that becomes limiting before when it was an open question it's an infinite amount of possibilities. So no matter what answer we were going to get, it was going to be limiting. Yeah. And this, like, maybe it's on the line thing means that it's back in J.J. Abrams' court. If this has to be the conclusion of the Skywalker saga, which means we have to go back to lineage and what that means, then maybe you could go back and retcon it and it won't feel weird. If it's just all-out war between this two, this light side, dark side, yeah, force then it almost Kylie doesn't even matter is, anymore. Exactly. Then, like, don't even bring it up, and then we could have this debate endlessly until you release that expanded universe book that we'll all be waiting for. Yeah. But it's really about what serves the actual movie. Like, I'm Luke, I Am Your Father serves Empire Strikes Back so well because up until that moment, you're seeing Darth Vader being, like, the worst motherfucker in the galaxy. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, yeah, but the worst motherfucker in the galaxy actually has a seed in our hero and that causes conflict. And it's not even until the beginning of Return of the Jedi that you realize that Luke's plan is to turn his father. We're just left with like this, oh my God moment. Yeah, like yeah. that's that's the least that's the thing that Luke didn't need to hear. Much like that's the thing Ray didn't need to hear. When he says, Vader, I heard you killed my father, the thing he does not want to hear is no, I'm your father. Yeah. Your Jedi Knight lied to you. So that works great in a story purpose, much like Ray's parents being nobody while she's being nagged by Kylo Ren in the turn of the dark side thing works really well here. So yeah. I'm not going to be mad canonically. I think that's like a mad on the Internet uh, useless thing <laughs> that you know makes me feel better. But uh, I do hope that if he does undo it, it's because the story's molded around that, not because yeah. he feels like he needs to help fan them out. I got you. I got you. Now, circling back a little bit, you know, to, to things that I feel like Johnson just decided to just take a left turn almost just without, you know, to me, almost sort of carelessly. And this is going to be, this might seem a little nitpicky or I might be reading too much into it. But, you know, at the end of The Force Awakens, you know, Luke is wearing those white robes, which are very sort of Jedi-ish. And in this movie, we see he takes it off right after the he meets with Rey and he puts it away. And it sort of, see, it seemingly symbolizes that he's putting his Jedi life life away and then later on when he puts it back on again to go reconnect with the force you know again it, it, it's it's there to give instill us with this idea that the white robes are are they, they go part and parcel with his connection to the force and his desire to be a jedi again but so why would he be wearing that at the end of the force awakens if he has supposedly been on this island disconnected from the force for god knows how long and what's nothing to do with anything you know to i mean me, do you want the, the canon answer, or do you want the answer that makes me feel better? <laughs> uh, the one that makes you feel better, because I had a hard time getting over that. Like I, it, To me, it was just another example of J.J. was setting something up. He had Luke in a very different frame of mind than where Johnson took him. 
Oh, I thought Luke was going to kill himself. Oh, you think so? I didn't even think of that. I think Luke was almost like done with that fucking island. And like the looks he gives mm-hmm. Ray oh. when she's just following him around is like sort of like defiant, like green milk, like fish, like fuck you for making me do this. <laughs> Don't you see how horrible this is? Like this is what happens. So wow. I always thought, yeah, it was ceremonial because he never goes back up to that peak. That peak isn't important. That's not like a temple. It's not, there's nothing there. Yeah. He doesn't fish there. He's just at the highest point of Octo looking over the ocean in his formal robes. And that's then, oops. Interesting. So, uh, you know, that's that's a crazy fan theory. And I wonder if anyone else thinks that because that's. Well, I mean, it makes me feel better because you're right in the sense that, you know, his outfits and what they mean should mean something. But I do like the idea that, like, he's deconstructed his X-Wing. Who knows where the fuck his green lightsaber is? He certainly doesn't seem to care where lightsabers go. That he yeah. was just like every day on Octo's fucking misery. Why am I here? And so he just goes up there every day in his Sunday best, thinking maybe today is the day I jump. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> that that's pretty dark. Um, but all right, you know. So that, that that see that would be an interesting way to justify it. But I I, I think you also see my point that like I, I think you know Luke was was meant to be in a different sort of situation than where Johnson took him. Um, and there's just you know there's a few things like that. Like honestly, like some of Johnson's choices to me retroactively make Force Awakens worse. You know, like for example. Um, I I honestly felt like the only way you could justify at the end of Force Awakens that R2 magically woke up at the end and gave everyone the missing piece on how to find Luke was because Luke had sensed Han's death and he used his abilities to kind of like reactivate R2 and say, okay, fine, lead them to me. It's time, you know, it's time for me to re-enter the fray because, you know, my my good friend, the father of the boy I lost has passed on and they're going to need me. Like to me, that was the only way you could really justify it without just saying it's a stupid Hollywood coincidence that R2 just magically wakes up from this coma. So that's why for me, when Luke has no idea that Han died, I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, and to me, like they had to do that because Ryan decided to go away in, in terms of saying like Luke has been disconnected from the force. He's closed himself off. That's how he didn't know. But I really feel like Luke did know. And that's one of the reasons why he looks so heartbroken at the end of the movie. He's also sort of reeling from Han's death. Do you think I'm insane for reading that much into it? Or do you think that the R2 thing really was just meant to be a coincidence? Um... Uh... Well, I know the production answer for why they say R2-D2 took so long to wake up, which is that he got a download of like all the First Order map files when it was still the Empire in transitioning. And as soon as they realized he needed to find Luke, it took him all of his processing power and that exact amount of time to filter... <laughs> what the empire slash Kylo Ren knew. But wasn't he like off, off? Like he didn't even have lights or beeping going on. He was seemingly in some sort of droid coma, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the official response to why was R2-D2 just shut himself off. The production's response is he was processing the power, uh, the information from the download of all the empire. Yeah. That feels like weak sauce. That feels like they, you know, they knew Ryan Johnson wasn't going to go any other way with that. So they had to come up with something, but in all honesty, I swear, you know, in, in, it, had Abrams made the second film, we would have found out that like Luke purposely kind of said, all right, fine, lead them to me. It's time for me to re-enter the fray. You know what I mean? I, I honestly think that's where they were going with it, but I don't want to harp on that because that's just like a theory thing. My, my, my sort of bigger issue here is I feel like this film 
exacerbated Ray's Mary Sue issues. Because for mm. me, it was going, you know, a lot of, of, of what was going to make The Force Awakens more palatable in terms of Ray, you know, as we think back on it, was the fact that she still needed training to do all these things that she did and that she wasn't actually overpowered in The Force Awakens. You know, I always go back to the, the, the duel with Kylo. You know, everyone says, oh, she beat him. No, she didn't beat him. She didn't fight him with any sense of strategy. She wasn't this master swordsman. A, he didn't want to kill her. He wanted to recruit her. And B, he was very badly injured. So, you know, she really wasn't this cunning, amazing warrior. And we were going to have to see in the second film how she actually does become a better fighter and, and actually hones those skills. But in this film, that never happens. She's just all of a sudden this great warrior that no one teaches her how to use a bow staff. And she's doing like ninja moves on the sides of Octo. She fights off Snoke's, um, you know, red Imperial guards who are like supposedly is like elite kill team. And she fights them and she's the one who has to like save Kylo at the very end of that. So all of a sudden she's this incredible warrior, whereas in Force Awakens, you know, the way she was depicted was she just had a lot of raw strength, but she also had a lot of good fortune in that Kylo wasn't trying to, he was mainly taking defensive swipes with his lightsaber and he was mainly trying to get close enough to tell her, let me train you, you know? So I, in this movie, they, I think they really exacerbated the Mary Sue stuff. She's suddenly this amazing warrior, even though no one's, we, 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 we have no knowledge of her ever training as a, as a fighter. And they, and then little things, you know, suddenly, you know, she, she can uh, speak Wookiee all of a sudden, even though not much time has passed and she has an interaction with Chewie on the, on the Millennium Falcon where he, he says something and she perfectly understands it and goes with it. And I'm like, she just seems like a character who, like, who can just do everything way too easily. And I think this movie like, exacerbated that and retroactively made her Mary Sue situation in The Force Awakens way worse. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, let me ask you this. How much training is required for the most powerful force being at any given time? <sighs> Luke never finished his Jedi training. Anakin was pod racing, which no other human can do, <laughs> and flew a Naboo space fighter and then shows up in the Clone Wars and gets his own Padawan before becoming a master. So there's but, uh, but don't you kind of the, the get, idea that oh go ahead no I just like don't you kind of get the sense through a lot of the prequel trilogy you know he is still somewhat under the wing of people even if we're not seeing it he's under Qui Gon he's under Ben and there's perhaps more going on than meets the eye like you know you kind of get the sense that he's in this tutelage role with this master and even if we don't see it he he's getting all of his skills fine tuned you know even even if it's off camera. But you kind of get sure. That I mean, I just never put much in what Jedi training or Sith training is. Like those are capable of taking Force users and making them stronger in one side of a religion, and it's capable of unlocking skills. But it's un—it's not unlocking skills like learning a new skill. Literally unlocking skills. That's why Rey is able to make rocks float and uh, crack the island just by contemplating the dark side. Like yeah. the Force is a magical, spiritual thing. It's like Jesus wasn't any less Jesus at 10 when he's talking in temples than he is at 34 when he's getting crucified. Yeah. He's just come to a better understanding what it is. The fighting thing definitely like the the staff to the, the lightsaber thing probably wouldn't be as one to one like 
I mean, I'm not one of those people that's like Finn shouldn't be able to use a lightsaber. Like anybody yeah. can use a lightsaber, you just pick it up. But the fact that like it has no weight is why people need to train with it. Like I, it's that that seemed like maybe a little fast in service. I don't know, because the, that's uh, the thing. Like story. to me, like in that in that sequence in the Last Jedi where she's standing on the rock and doing all this all these fancy forms with the bow staff and all this you know great sort of sword play with the lightsaber. To me, it just it didn't jive with what we know of her from the Force Awakens. Because in that fight that she has with Kylo, she just looks like a mad woman, you know, like swinging wildly, just you know, with trying with brute force just to attack him. You know, Abrams seemed to be trying to convey the fact that no, she's not a master swords person a swordsman so however the hell you, you should refer to it you know that she's not actually this gifted fighter but you know the, the, there are other outside factors and all of a sudden in johnson's movie she's like a freaking ninja with a bow staff and and she's good enough to fight you know snoke's elite guards so i don't know to me like if there were mary sue issues before this now it's like now they've increased tenfold as far as i'm concerned she's just way too awesome but maybe that's mm. just me um, I think that you have you have a crazy one of those people in every series. Yeah, uh, like you like there's there's no we have we've gotten a bunch of Yoda backstory and there is no there's still not a hint of a period of time where he was ever trained by a living person. Yeah. So just the idea that uh, in certain beings, the force manifests itself. That's sort of like beyond training. And the idea that the Jedi and the Sith need to end is because they took this very loose, this very spiritual thing that makes its own rules and tried to say, no, here are the rules. There's a light side. Yeah. There's a dark side. Dark side users can manifest force lightning, but light side users don't want to manipulate the force in that way because it's against the force's will. Like all that shit's <laughs> bullshit. Um, but like, I, I, I do get the idea that there should be more training here. But if anything, the way you're saying that The Last Jedi makes The Force Awakens kind of worse, I'm mad at The Force Awakens for putting The Last Jedi in this position. Yeah. Like, if we didn't have to end on the cliffhanger with Rey and Luke, if we could have jumped forward some time period, we could have gotten to the chase uh, with the Empire and the hyperdrive tracking later yeah. in the movie and maybe had some different, like, pacing issues uh, but like ultimately, these three things are going to have to being be handed off between the directors. And I actually enjoy that. So the making of the Phantom Menace is on YouTube completely uh, on the Star Wars official channel. It's like a little over an hour. Yeah. Uh, and it's hilarious because the entire thing is a documentary of people doing what George Lucas says. And then 10 minutes before the documentary ends, they watch the first assembly cut like a year before the movie's actually going to come out. Cause they still have all this CG to do. Yeah. And the faces of them watching it, even George's first comment is I might've gone overboard in a few places. <laughs> like they look at it and they realize they have a bad movie and there's nothing they could do about it. Oh. So they just kind of push forward. And I'm like, you know what, if what we get are these little weird things that are you know, like continuity mistakes, I'm okay with that because the reality is if this was George Lucas, the force awakens would be re-released and they would have moved Kylo's scar and yeah, we yeah. would have gotten an added scene of Phasma blowing herself out of the, the trash compactor. This yeah. time we just don't. We just move forward. This is the way it is now. This is Each movie sets its own rules. And as long as it isn't world-breaking, which I don't think anything in The Last Jedi is. I think a lot shocking, but I don't yeah. think anything's world-breaking. Then we get to move forward with it. But I'm, like, I'm super happy that it's not one person's thing. If we get a little bit of bumps because of that, I'm more than willing to take that because 
George Lucas tunnel vision uh, gives yeah. us some And it wasn't good for anybody things. in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, so I've only got you for a few more minutes. So we, you know, I want to talk about the other big thing, you know, in the third act with Luke dying. Actually, before we even do that, the, the, there's a third act moment that I alluded to earlier in the episode that I want to just tackle with you real quick because I know I've yeah. really I've got a limited window here with you. But I absolutely hated the Rose thing where, where she where she quote unquote where she saves Finn from stopping the 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 Death Star mm-hmm. battering ram beam. Both times yeah. I've seen it, it just pissed me off royally. Let me just vent real quick why, and then you can let me know if I'm on crack, and then we get into Luke's <laughs> death. So, okay, they had just established that when that beam goes off, it's going to crack that quote unquote big ass door like an egg, and they basically make it seem like. No matter what, we have to stop that beam from going off. If that beam goes off, which is a miniaturized form of Death Star tech, everything's over. Everyone in there is going to die. The resistance is over. The most important thing in the world right now is to stop that beam from going off. And then we start getting this shell game of of fake outs. First, we see, okay, we establish now that they're going to be going after it in these very sort of broken down, old, rusty ships. Then we start finding out that it looks like someone's going to have to make a a heroic sacrifice because the odds are against them. And we go on Rose's face and she clutches that little moon pendant. And even my wife turned to me and the first time she's like, oh, Rose is going to, she's going to make the sacrifice. Oh, wow. You know, whatever. Then they, and then they start the, the, the scene and we still keep thinking Rose is going to be the one who's going to give her life to stop the thing. Then all of a sudden we find out that it's Finn. And now I, at this point, I, I came emotionally unglued in a, in a good way. My hands went to the sides of my face involuntarily. I got goosebumps all over the place. I'm like, oh my God, Finn is about to make the ultimate sacrifice. He used to work for the... Um, First order, how poetic is this that he's going to do everything he can to see? He's going to give his life so that the resistance can survive. I thought I, I, it was exhilarating. Then she stops him, and I, my instant reaction isn't relief. It's like, what did you just do? Everyone's dead now. You stopped the guy who was going to save the resistance, you moron. And then when he goes over to her and she's, she delivers that line and kisses him as there's an explosion going on in the background, I can't enjoy that as a moment of like, oh, wow, what a great moment. I'm looking at that door exploding and I'm thinking, oh, everyone's dead now. We were told that if that laser goes off, everything is screwed. And now the laser has gone off, but you're asking me to give a damn about this kiss, this forced kiss. So both times I've seen it, you know, I hated it. Obviously, after the first time I realized, like, like they instantly sort of backpedaled on the stakes after after establishing that if the, if that ray goes off, we're all screwed. Now it just became, okay, well, now the door's open, but, you know, everything's still going to be relatively fine. But for a few minutes there, we were told that ray cannot go off. And so that whole little scene there, we capped off with the kiss, even coupled with that corny line that she said, because honestly... I knew that about her character just from the Canto bite sequence. At the end, when Finn is saying that everything was worth it because at least we got to destroy that place and, and give it to them, and then she takes the, um, the saddle off of that creature and the creature runs off into the wild and she says, now it's worth it. I thought that was beautiful. To me, that communicated that idea to me. That what Rose, what's important to Rose, her, her brand of heroism isn't about destroying or hurting bad guys 
guys are getting revenge. It's about setting something beautiful free and being helpful, not destructive. So I got that already. I didn't need that line of dialogue to spell it out and spoon feed that to me. So amidst everything else going on where I'm worried that everyone in the base is dead and then the, the, and then her kissing him and, the, and her, her saying that line like that both times I've seen it. I've just been like, that is like the worst moment in this movie for me. Mm. <laughs> I just had to vent that. And I don't know if you have a response to it, but I had to say, I mean, that the to kiss someone. could be stronger. I didn't have the exact same reaction, but I would say that you're still in the Poe at the beginning of the movie mindset. Like it's not worth losing 15 people to stop a laser from blowing open the door. That's the point of yeah. Poe's storyline in this movie. Yeah. And it is kind of weird that Holdo has to sacrifice herself to save more people, but that's not the thing that Leia tries to impress upon Poe is that these escalating goals of star Wars battles that make them feel like battlefront games, yeah. get to the point, stop the thing, blah, blah, blah. Those are super important for when people want to be heroes. When no, when Flyboy, farm boy from nowhere, bullseyes the death star that's great that's not how you could wage war um against something so the rose line isn't so much for rose we definitely do know that about it's for uh it's for finn to learn his lesson well finn's gonna learn his lesson probably with the kiss because finn's just like really into (laughs) you know relationships where one person's unconscious um (laughs) but uh that's just as much for the audience for us to connect all those story arcs ending in the same place on crate where Poe's like, this isn't worth it. Pull back. We'll like figure something out. And Finn's like, no. And then Rose is like doubly. No, haven't you been paying attention to what this movie has been telling you about being a hero with large acts and making sure everybody knows it. Yeah. Uh, So I think it's like all thematically there. Uh, I just don't think it was executed that well. Like, I like the idea behind it. I just thought it was like sort of ham fisted and sort of like, you can't make me feel as a viewer that no matter what, if that laser goes off, it's all over for us. And then expect me to be happy as our two heroes kiss in front of the laser going off. Just to me, it it felt sort of tone deaf. Um, But you know what? I I don't want to waste more time on that because I know you really have to go (laughs) soon. Luke's death. How did you feel about it? Uh, Good. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's nice to see him go out with a force power we haven't seen him use since God Luke and the Darth Cadus, I think, uh, storyline. Uh, yeah, this is why I'm glad to force- have you on. I have no idea what the hell that even is, but okay, keep going. <laughs> so Luke used to be super powerful in the force, so he used to be able to project himself around. Uh, okay. Like, you know, he'd be on the Falcon with Han and Leia, and he'd be like, here's where we should go next. I'll be joining you there. And they're like, what? And he's like, because I'm back on that planet. And then he'd fade away. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> well, there's even like one part. a hologram, part- though, because he wasn't actually there. Well, he's not actually there in what okay. I'm talking about oh, either. Okay. okay. Um, uh, he is able to use the force from a distance, basically. So there's okay. another time where he's monolo- monologuing to Darth Cadus, who's one of the Han and Leia's children who's struggling with the dark side. But he not only force projects him into there, but holds him to his chair just through like having force power. That's what we call force god Luke. So those of us that are used to the expanded universe knows know that it didn't have to go this way. We actually have a ton of books where it went the way you were expecting, where he formed an academy and became basically like an all-powerful god. So knowing that what that looks like, I'm super interested in 
tearing down the idea of the Jedi because if the prequels taught us anything, it's that the Jedi were lame. Like they were <laughs> said, they had like all this shit together. Yeah. But Qui Gon Jinn's like, here's our chosen one. They're like, no. But then like they also don't see Darth Sidious coming. They also don't see that they get manipulated to become tools of the Emperor in this like yeah, shadow yeah, war. Yeah. And then the second anybody figures anything out. It's like Order sixty six, and they're they're gone. The Jedi are dumb. Um, <laughs> Jedi Jedi Knights are cool, and super powerful Force users are cool, and Yoda yeah. will forever remain cool because he got off that council when the getting was good. Um, but I mean, I'm very happy that Luke got to be broken, but also got to be all powerful, and that we lost him in a way that means I'm he's going to be back for episode nine. I don't think there's a way you end the Skywalker saga with, uh, without more Luke, uh, force ghosting. Yeah. We got, and now my, my, uh, my hope for like a climax in episode nine, like I know I've been telling people not to have hopes because that crushes like some things, but I would love for the main force ghosts to show up to help Ray and uh or whoever ends up fighting for the light side yeah because you have yoda you have uh ewan mcgregor alive as obi-wan kenobi uh you have luke and then you have hayden christensen if you want to use you have qui-gon i mean liam neeson's always down to do something yeah that's true and they did uh retcon it so he qui-gon can make his physical form now we learned in the book uh from a certain point of view nice uh in between the years of him dying and uh, a new hope, he got a little bit better at forcing. So he doesn't have to be floating, floating specs anymore. He could technically become a force ghost, but I think that would be a great star Wars moment that brings it all together and also shows us something new. The point being is that because Luke wasn't, didn't die in combat, I'm not one of those people that's like, because his, uh, you know, his energy got drained more because he had to get stabbed by a lightsaber. He just straight up wasn't there. It was just the effort of pushing it. And then I don't think it was like his battery was drained and he had to let go. I think he saw an opening to let go. So it's like when he's talking, when he's talking to Yoda, they agree to help Ray, but then he shows up and he doesn't help Ray. He helps the resistance and says goodbye to Ben. I still think we have that missing third lesson we're promised as yeah. coming back. Oh, so you think they'll do that? Yeah, that's a good point. That is a very good point. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The first time I saw it, I was very, very bummed about Luke's death. On the second go around, I realized that my bummedness was just from a place of selfishness. You know, it wasn't because I didn't think it was a good death, and it wasn't because I think it was a poor decision. You know, I realized, like, you know what? That was kind of like the perfect poetic way to say goodbye to him. I guess I just selfishly, like I've spent all these years, you know, pining to finally get to reconnect with Luke. And I feel like I finally just started to see him again and then they killed him off. So I was, I was bummed, but I realized that that was just my own fanboy bias and not me just observing the film as what they were trying to accomplish and what this means for, for Luke's arc. You know, well, I mean, I think you should be that shocked. And I think that's, you know, into it. I think Brian Johnson was that shocked that they let him do it. Like the emotional core of what that moment is, is valid, regardless of how you feel about it. I just feel like the movie didn't. I feel like a lot of people who are complaining, like wanted him to show up and like pull Star Destroyers out of the sky or something. Or at least one final epic Luke lightsaber battle. You know, it would have been nice. It would have been nice if they could have found a way, but I guess they really couldn't have and done things the way they did. 
Right. And then, but I think that what we did end up with was sort of like Luke is the most powerful force user we've ever seen on the screen because of this one thing they let him do. And it's pacifist and it's touching and it's really well done in the movie in the sense that Luke's lightsaber doesn't react to pieces of salt like Kylo Ren's does. Luke makes no footfall sounds. Uh, There's a moment when Leia, Luke's handing the dice to Leia. And if you watch her face changes because she realizes he's not there. It's not that she's mourning Han because it's not a sad look. She looks up and she's suddenly surprised. And that's when she realizes that Luke isn't there. Mm -hmm. So if you go back and watch the movie, there's tons of stuff like that. Uh, Kylo Ren's lightsaber when he was a Padawan is the same hilt. So it implies that he bled his crystal and cracked it and then had to modify his lightsaber to have the cross guard, which is why all the wirings on the outside of his lightsaber. Like I didn't figure that <laughs> out until I started going through Reddit stuff. stills. But wow. like there's, there's a ton in this movie that, uh, puts little, um, sign marks on what the force means and yeah. what it's doing and what happened to these people in between the things. So like we all got to go through the force back and the force awakens for two years, we get to do that with the extent of this movie to try to, you know, tease out, you know, does it, does it matter that the first Jedi seal has blue eyes like Snoke and looks like it has a big head? Like maybe it does. Maybe <laughs> Snoke was the first Jedi. It just wasn't important to bring it up now. Or then things that were like um, Yoda, Luke's trying to burn down the tree and Yoda says she has all she needs. He needs the books. He knows the books aren't in that tree and he just needs to burn it down to show Luke. He knows he's not burning down the Jedi anything mm. like Yoda knows. Yeah. You know, there's a whole bunch of layers in the movie and in the dialogue uh, that I think, you know, really makes it a complete bold statement that we're going to have to reckon with, but I'm having a hell of a time fighting people on the internet about star Wars. Cause that's what I want to do even when there isn't a new movie out. So <laughs> it's been great. And this is why it's always such a pleasure to have you on. Cause you pick up on all this stuff that I never in a million years would have noticed. And your perspective on this stuff is just so like layered. You come at it from the extended universe and the original trilogy from the making of documentary. I mean, you, you're so well-rounded with this stuff. So thank you so much for, for coming on and, and, and sharing your insights with us again. How can people find you on the Twitter? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DA 70. I have pinned right at the top there right now, my, uh, work for New York times watching on star Wars, the last Jedi, and then, um, two podcasts also about star Wars, the last Jedi, in case you haven't gotten enough of me now. <laughs> and what are they? What are the two podcasts? I have a fighting in the war room and a storm of spoilers, both of which go into non-spoiler and spoiler sections. But, you know, if you want to talk about some things about how Leia uses the force, which you didn't really get to, or about cameos in the film, those are in yeah, those podcasts. I feel like we barely sure. scratched the surface, but I, I know that you've been talking about this stuff ad nauseum and you're a very busy man. So I don't want to take up any more of your time. Maybe I'll have you on again next month as we do like an even more sort of further postmortem on Last Jedi as we see where it where it ends with its theatrical run and, and how it compares to Force Awakens and what that could mean for Ryan Johnson's trilogy if it does somewhat fall way short of the Force Awakens. You know, we'll have plenty to speak about in the new year when I start the season two of El Fanboy. So either way. Oh, yeah. Also, we're uh, five months away from a new Star Wars movie we haven't seen anything from yet. Yeah, so at I'd some point, love... we're going to have to see Solo yes. things. Yes, yes, we will. But Dave, thank you. Have an awesome rest of the new year, rest of the year. And uh, I'll see you again in 2018. Thanks so much, Mario. 
It's always a pleasure having that cat on my show, man. The stuff Dave comes up with, the observations he makes, it's just, uh, he knows his stuff. He really knows his stuff. But um, all right, boys and girls, it's, it's about time for me to bring an end to season one of El Fanboy. I'm going to come back in 2018 in three weeks' time with plenty to share with you and uh, uh, sort of recharge, joie de vivre, as we uh, get ready to tackle a whole new chapter in the El Fanboy saga, to uh, sort of quote the Sicario 2 trailer. My final film recommendation of the year is, uh, you know, I've been watching that Spielberg documentary on HBO, so I've got Spielberg on the brain, and uh, it's Minority Report. I feel like, my, you know, of, of Spielberg's Au revoir, when people talk about his great films, Minority Report doesn't come up nearly often enough. And if you've never sat down and watched that movie and, you know, from start to finish, or if it's been a very long time, I think you owe it to yourself to see Minority Report again, because that film is an absolute gem that works on just about every level imaginable. From the action, to the science fiction, to the heart of it, to the performances, to the twists and turns, to the way, you know, Spielberg, Lee, you know, in, in, in his films, he's truly got a knack for making sure that everything you see is there for a reason. Every character, even if they only have one line of dialogue, they're given a lot in that line of dialogue. They get to shine every single, there's no wasted motion in the great Spielberg movies. And Minority Report is a perfect example of that. Every single scene is filled with little gems. So Minority Report is my final recommendation. Also, if you haven't yet seen that Spielberg documentary, you, I think you owe it to yourself to see that. But that's it, ladies and gents. It is time to close off a magnificent 2017 here at El Fanboy. Thank you so much for everyone who's taken the time to support, to listen, to share, to write reviews, to subscribe to the YouTube channel, to go to elfanboy.com for my columns and scoops. You know, just really thank you. And, and if anyone wants to communicate with me over the course of the next three weeks, you know, I'm very active over there on the Twitter uh, with my with my um, my handle is I underscore am underscore MFR. I'm always happy to chat with you and answer any and all questions. I know a bunch of you are dying to find out what's going on on the DC end of things. And I am working on trying to find out what that uh, January announcement that my source keeps hinting to me about. But even they are like, you know, it's it's still getting percolated. It's still getting cooked. It's still, you know, it's it's still uh, it's still it's still marinating. But trust me, as soon as I know what it is, you will know what it is. So uh, I'll between now and then I'll chat with you on the Twitter. And uh, it's been a great year until 2018. Adios. Adios.